cosmos and awaken the universe within you. Unlock your seven cents to surpass your limits and your eight cents to cast off your mortal coil. We're about to venture into an epic tale of warriors amidst a hot-blooded battle-filled adventure that takes you above the heights of sanctuary and into the depths of hell. That's right. We're talking about the most shonen of shonen manga, a metal guitar riffing logicless trill ride that will make your jaw drop from sheer audacity and your heart soar. Because of its childlike sincerity, your eyes will go blind several times. They'll die and come back from the dead like a phoenix soaring higher ever than before. Because there's only one word to truly describe this manga, and that's radtastic. Welcome, one and all, to Manga Mavericks. We're a podcast dedicated to discussing manga as a medium and as an industry. I'm your host, Lum Ramayasha, and welcome one and all to our retrospective of Masami Kurumada's magnum opus, the high-flying Pegasus Fantasy Shonen Jump Battle Mongo Classic, and let's scream it out at the top of your lungs now, the title, Saint Seiya! And here with me to discuss this passionate series are two of its most passionate fans, who also happen to have worked on the English localization of the manga for Wiz Media. We have the editor of Saint Seiya, and a ton of other great manga like Inuyasha and Naruto. We have Shane and Garrity. Hi. And we also have, back on the show again, the translator of Saint Seiya and many other great series like Naruto and the upcoming Rose of Versailles release from Mudan Entertainment. We have Dr. Mari Morimoto. Pegasus Meteor Punch! <laughs> Yeah, Saint Seiya is just, uh, one of my favorite things about it are just the awesome attack names that the characters scream out. Rosan, Rising Dragon Blow, the Nebula Crush, Nebula Stream. I love all the attack names so much. But yeah, we are discussing Saint Seiya this episode. This is a podcast I've wanted to record for a long time to commemorate the series long past its 30th anniversary in start of the manga, but this year also marks the anime's 30th anniversary. And in addition, this episode kind of celebrates the return of Saint Seiya to uh, popular consciousness thanks to the new Netflix animated adaptation. But we are discussing the original manga from Masami Kuramata today which ran in Shonen Jump from 1986 to 1991, a five-year epic that continues on to this day through new sequels and spin-offs. But we are focusing on the original 28-volume run today. And I'm so uh, honored to have the editor and translator of the series for Viz Media on the show to talk about it, because you guys... You, not only did you work on the series, but you two are some of the most passionate Sanya fans that I have, uh, I know. Passionate and I feel real old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Mari is someone who was a fan before um, the translation started, and I think you really sort of, you know, sort of agitated for Viz to do it for a long time. Is that right? Oh, well, I was going into it once we got asked that question. No, let's start with that. I want to hear how you guys discovered Saint Seiya and like what your initial thoughts were on it and like like how you fell in love with it and kept reading it. And Mari, since your story does start before like we is licensed the manga, I want to hear how you discover Saint Seiya like way back in the 90s. You know, I was thinking about and I I can't remember honestly 
it was one of those things where I was reading a lot of shonen jump manga anyway, and it just happened to be one of the titles. I actually have my volume one that I managed to dig out, and it is a first print edition. So I don't think I bought it right when it came out, but when I bought the series, it was still under the first printing. Hmm. Wow. Original, like, first printing of the manga, which is like a volume from all the way back from 1986. 1986, September 15th. Wow. That's really cool because, so Saint Seiya started, I think, in January of 86. So, that's interesting to know that the first volume came out in September, which was a month before the anime started well, in October. this is the mm-hmm. Yeah, the collected volume. Yeah, this is Tankobon Volume 1, which has one, two, three, four, four chapters. And mm-hmm. I think what drew me to it was that um, I was a big fan of astrology and astronomy. And the whole thing with the constellations, I was also a big fan of mythology, whether it was Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Norse. So that tie-in. And even though it follows the trope of a lot of shonen manga with the hero surrounded by his team fighting successive battles... It was still one of those series where the main character was not a loser. He wasn't <laughs> whiny. And that's what drew me to it. He isn't whiny, but he definitely does put up a little bit of a resistance to, I don't want to follow what your organization, your foundation wants me to do. I just want to find my sister. But then he gets roped into like, nope, I, I got to find this tournament. And later, nope, I got to protect Atina. But... Yeah, it's like, Seiya is very much like a, a do-getter protagonist. Like, he's very proactive. He's always, like, willing to put himself out there into the action. Like, he's definitely not a protagonist who, you know, puts so much resistance to going on the, the hero's call, the hero's journey. Like, he's always, like, steadfast to defend his uh, friends and yep. people in need. That's really awesome. So, like... Did you continue to follow the series, like, through the, the Tankobon releases as they came out, as you were able to collect them? Yes, I had the whole thing. I can't remember if I bought it as set, or if I actually only got the first bunch, and then I caught up and I was getting them one volume at a time. Mm-hmm. And... Had the series concluded when you started collecting the series, or was it still ongoing? I really don't remember. Mm-hmm. But around what time did you manage to read the final volume? Either right when it came out, or right after it came out. That's the that's thing with these timelines, is that I really can't remember if... I think, actually... What I might have done is initially borrow them from a friend. And then one of the next trips I went to Japan, I went to a used bookstore and bought it as a set. Hmm. So they had like a bundle of like a bunch of volumes all together. I've seen like pictures of uh, 
in Japanese bookstores still have like complete series sets all bundled together. Yeah. And honestly, back then I was going to Saturday school and a bunch of us, well, mostly two or three of us would bring in a couple manga and trade around. And the point was we were supposed to take it home and read at home until the next Saturday. But a lot of times we'd get bored during class and actually read it during class. Hmm. That's a good thing to have, like to have some like really, you know, exciting manga to read while you're having downtime in school. Like between... Oh, it wasn't downtime. It was during lectures, and <laughs> Japanese textbooks were actually bigger than manga, even bigger <laughs> than the tankobon. So you could just slip the tankobon inside your open textbook and <laughs> keep your textbook kind of upright on the desk. And as no, long smart. as the teacher wasn't walking around the classroom, they would have no idea. That's awesome. <laughs> so you were sneakily reading manga during class. So that's how I read Saint Seiya, um, Fist of the North Star, mm-hmm. uh, Cat's Eye, Dr. Slump. You know, all these classic titles that were all coming out at the same time. Nice. Yeah, those are real golden era series. Actually, I'm curious how Shannon first found out about Saint Seiya. I first found out about it when I got the job of editing it. <laughs> so, uh, one of several titles that Urian Brown, the previous editor, handed over to me when he was taking over some other duties. And um, Urian, I think, had never really quite gotten the genius of Saint Seiya, so he was happy to hand it to me. But um, I fell in love with it almost immediately. Um, it is just... Um, so intense and so over the top and so much just the prototypical Shonen Jump manga. And I I got into it right away and was very soon trying to convince everyone else of its greatness. <laughs> That's awesome. That's actually interesting because at the very least, I I had no idea that Nirayan had any like trouble grasping it because to me, he was super enthusiastic about it. Right, is super enthusiastic about everything. You know, he's he's a and he's a good editor. He's a great editor. He's you know, um and he loves fighting manga. So I mean <laughs> he did I mean he I I'm sure he understood it because he's a he's a big fighting manga fan and he's like um a pretty big wheel and working on Shonen Jump now. But it wasn't one of his favorite series at the time, which is why I ended up getting it. Which is the, fine with me. The other thing that I think made it such a critical success in an economy, well, either financial or economic sense, is that is the huge tie-in to merch. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Bandai, even back then, but they would make the replicas of the cloths of the armor. And it was very, I want to say, forward-thinking for the time. It took the model of mecha series like Gundam, where... Every new arc, even the Bronze Saints would get upgrades on the clock, so they'd have to release more kits. Yeah, so many upgrades. Oh, the clocks are so amazingly <laughs> designed. Um, the mo- each volume of the manga has like diagrams showing yeah. how the clocks fit together and how they they form little figures, and then you can take them apart into armor. It's just so 
uh, it's so ingeniously thought out. It also is so perfect for merchandising that um, I'm, I'm deeply impressed by it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a shame we never really got model kits for Saint Seiya over here because I can only imagine, like, especially reading those diagrams of all the clots, like how fun it would be to, like, uh, you know, assemble the clots like in the form of like their base form, or they're like forming like a like a just a statue, and then assemble them onto a you know a, a action figure of the characters, and then you like put the clot on. That sounds like such fun. Actually, you can get them now, and not only can you get the some of the older ones, but they've either re-released or redesigned and put out new ones. And I think it's like. Either Bluefin, Tamashii Nations, or um, maybe they're just distributing, but they actually have cloths and figures that have been releasing for the last couple of years. Nice. I should definitely hit those up then. Like, uh, I, there are definitely some characters that I'd love to assemble the cloths for, like Gemini Saga. Or, I wonder if they have, like, even, like, the obscure characters, like Renee, the guy who, like, judges souls in hell. Yeah, no, they had all of them. Oh, nice. Oh, Papillon would be a good one. Papillon would be an interesting one. Oh, Papillon would be beautiful. <laughs> but they had, um, the most recent one that I can remember, and I think it was, they had an exclusive version, or maybe the only version was exclusive, but it was Athena in her, or it was, um, Princess Sienna. A.K.A. Sauri, <laughs> in her Athena god cloth. Oh, that's a, that'd be a good one. Is So that one is, like, a really rare one? Um, I'm trying to remember what it was, like, a 30th anniversary special, or if it was, like, a Tamashi Nations anniversary special. They had a tour two years ago. I'm trying to remember, but where they actually traveled several cities, including New York City, and in New York City, they had an expo at Grand Central Terminal. Hmm. Nice. But, uh, I think, yeah, definitely was, uh, really well-marketed, like, multimedia franchise from the beginning, because I think uh, Kurumada even mentioned that in one of his author, uh, commentaries in the, in the volume, that, like, Saint Seiya was kind of designed to to become like a multimedia franchise from the start, and got an anime very quickly. And I think that definitely just the uh, the power combo of like being available in so many different mediums, like all at once, like really early on, definitely helped attract like a huge fan base interested in a lot of different things, both like the the model building element, like people who are like just fans of awesome manga, and then the anime, you know, had. Was really well done. Had such an awesome soundtrack, incredibly iconic opening, and really good animation for the time. So, like, Seiya was definitely like a really formative and really uh, successful like '80s shonen anime for sure, and uh, very influential too. I, I think that a lot of modern shonen series, especially series that are based around like a team dynamic and have like this idea of oh, you have, like, our main group of characters who are kind of, like, rookies in training, but then you have, like, the elite group of characters who are, like, mentor figures who are, like, elite above. Like, series like Bleach and Demon Slayer that have that kind of structure, I think Saint Seiya was a huge influence on. And even other shows that have kind of, like, this fighting team kind of sort of Sentai dynamic. Like, 
I think perhaps like Sailor Moon, like just from the the market, the merchandising marketing end was uh, kind of done in a very similar way uh, to Saint Seiya in terms of like a series that like got an anime very quickly after the manga began. It was definitely designed to be like this multimedia, like uh, audience targeted show from the start. Oh yeah, no, it was an enormously popular series um, when it ran and hugely influential on shonen manga, particularly the manga in Shonen Jump. Uh, it was a really big turning point for Shonen Jump magazine, which had previously done a lot more sports-related manga, including Kuramata's own sports manga. Yeah, like his first series in Jump. Yeah. His first series in Jump was Ring Me Kakuro, yeah, which was also highly successful. I think uh, it, it was really notable, for, especially for the time, because it's like the first Shonen Jump series where the final chapter was like full color. Which to this day is like a very select club, which like only Dragon Ball, uh, I think Slam Dunk, and then Naruto are the only other series that have gotten that treatment. So it was a huge deal uh, at the time for sure. That's a series I'd le- really love to explore. Uh, yeah, I would love to see that translated. Yeah. That was a boxing manga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the English title is roughly like, stake it on the ring. Yeah, put it in mm-hmm. the ring. So it's a boxing manga, and Shonen Jump did a lot of sports manga at the time. But it, ha- it has a lot of crazy, fantastical elements and like, increasingly outlandish boxing moves that are impossible in the real world. And also, like, strangely <laughs> religious-themed characters. So it was, it was kind of already moving away from the more realistic type of action manga that Shonen Jump had been doing. And then he came up with Knights of the Zodiac, which sort of permanently pushed Shonen Jump into the realm of doing these more fantastic fantasy or science fiction based fighting manga where there's still a lot of battles and fighting but also a lot more focus on magic or science fiction elements or adventure and supernatural things and also like increasingly outlandish like levels of violence and action and fighting which is funny because i never consider saint Seiya to be really violent (laughs) i mean i guess it's because I was reading Fist of the North Star at, at the same time, mm-hmm. and that's so much more truly violent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the violence in Saint Seiya is so completely unrealistic and distanced from reality that it's almost not even violence. <laughs> Jason Thompson pointed out that parents couldn't object to the violence in Saint Seiya too much because it's all people like throwing punches that don't actually touch anything. <laughs> the mere power of the punch is fl- is flinging people away. So if you do the Pegasus rolling crush, you do not actually hurt anybody. You're just sort of waving your hands in the air. Yeah, it's like it, the way Kuramata draws it, it's like Seiya is on one page just throwing a bunch of punches like into the air and then you see the impacts hit someone on the next page. But you never see like fists really connect. I never thought about that. Yeah, and it's like the violence is so fantastical. Even the gruesome stuff, like when Icky shows up and like uh, I think Hydra is the bronze saint who challenges him, and then he like shows him an illusion of uh, Icky decapitating him, and it's like uh, it's just so extreme in a way that it's like it's just not replicable. It's pure fantasy violence. Like the Galaxian explosion, which is like probably my favorite move in a in in the series, is like it's just the background of planets exploding, and it's like somehow people are getting caught up in all the explosions and getting damaged. Like it's super crazy stuff like that that I absolutely love. I mean, the weird thing though is if you think about it, Saint Seiya still 
had one foot in reality. This took place on Earth in the roughly in the 80s. And, you know, Seiya, the main character, was from Japan. There was another character from Russia. There was another character from China. It's based on the Greek mythologies, although the Hades arc, even though it was the Greek names of the Greek heroes and gods, it still took place in a Hades that was reminiscent of Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Karamana definitely mixed a lot of myths into St. as it went on. But it wasn't a completely fantasy world like Naruto or... Well, I guess Fissa's, Fissa Northstar was technically on Earth. But um, Dr. Slump and then Dragon Ball was an Earth-like planet, but it really didn't resemble Earth. Mm-hmm. Those were pure fantasy worlds, whereas Kuramata uh, set Saintsia on a version of Earth where there is, like, just normal daily lives of people going on, but then you have in the background, like, the saints are waging this war of gods that have going on since the dawn of time, which is really interesting. And, like, it's kind of crazy to think about, like, the consequences this has in the series. Like, in the Poseidon arc, like, millions die because of the rising tides and the floods, and it's kind of crazy. It, we don't really see the human costs of, like, the battle between the saints, uh, like, and the effect that has on civilians, but yeah, so, so to me, Saint Seiya is, like, really, it's interesting because it keeps the focus, like, very insular, like, just on what is happening with, like, the, the saints and the people that they're, like, fighting against, but, like, I think in the Poseidon arc, you definitely really established, like, this war that is happening, uh, between these different gods, it, it does affect the people on Earth, and there are consequences, like, we don't really see, like, the extent of, like, uh, the damage in the Poseidon arc, but, like, it definitely gives you a sense that, yeah, there is there is a lot at stake here in this battle of gods. It is really interesting to me, because a lot of times in, uh, you know, other shown in battle manga, even when it's, like, set in a real-world setting, like, you don't, I don't think you really feel like the, like, regular civilians, like, the world is truly at stake because the focus is so much focused on, like, a smaller community of people. Like, Bleach was one where, you know, this is, this is also, like, a supernatural forces colliding with each other. And potentially, like, the, the results of their clashes will have world-shattering implications. But I think the largest extent we see of that in Bleach is that uh, Karakura Town, Ichigo's hometown, is, like, briefly the battleground for, you know, uh, the fight between the Shinigami and the Arankar, but they have evacuated most of the people out of there already, and no one, no civilians really die out of that conflict. And that's in contrast to St. Seiya, whereas even though it's in the background, like, you definitely get a sense that, yeah, there is, like, a larger implications to the world from these battles. And uh I think Saint Seiya is a really interesting series to me in that respect, like in in the violence and also like kinda kind of the deeper goings on of the the world and lore and how Kermonic's kinda mixing up different myths. Like even in the even with the Saints, even though they're based on like constellations and stuff, you have characters like Shaka who has kind of these Buddhist roots and that's really interesting to me as well, like how Kuramata kind of mixes different religious elements and, and kind of tries to form a 
interesting philosophy out of that combination. Well, there's only so many constellations. So yeah. in the end, there were definitely saints whose constellations were not necessarily part of the Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it ended up being a mix of a lot of different things. It was a Greek mythology. They ended up putting a lot of Christian stuff in. Mm-hmm. Not always 100% understands like what stuff comes from Greek mythology and what stuff comes from Christian mythology. You've got some Buddhism in there. Um, Hades arc is like based on um, Dante's Circles of Hell, which has exactly nothing to do with Greek mythology, but that's okay. Well, I think it's partly because it further defined the underworld, and the Greek underworld did have separate parts to it, but it wasn't as strictly defined or maybe extensively defined in a manner that has lasted to the present day. Yeah, the Greek underworld is kind of undefined and un it isn't re- and it's not really based on like um torture and punishment the way that like the Christian mm-hmm. hell is. So I can understand why Ms. Kuramata would be would be drawn to the Christian hell with its extremely imaginative punishment. <laughs> yeah. Subject <laughs> characters too. Yeah, like there's a there's a spread in one of the volumes that show all the circles of hell. And there's like so many different like insane punishments like uh I'm trying to find the the page here, but like there's a freezing hell of course, there's like a a fiery hell. What's interesting though, if you look carefully, and this is something I discovered when I was translating it, but Dante's Inferno has nine circles, but Kurumada's Hades arc only defines eight. And it's only that mm. he numbered them one through eight. The ninth levels, well, it's a little more complex because what it is is, if I remember correctly, what it is is the first level, which is Limbo, is not defined and numbered in the Hades arc. So everything's off by one. So what Kurumada calls the first prison is actually the second circle and so forth. So the ninth level of Dante is the eighth prison in the Hades arc. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So only eight circles held, but there's like so many different spears and then there's the male so there's like subdivisions within the prisons too it's like it's a really complicated map you kind of draw so like there's so many different like checkpoints that the characters have to cross through Mm -hmm. but they're all based on Dante yeah it's really neat and eventually like in the Hades arc I think he had this he realized he had to skip stroll this because otherwise it would it would take too long for them to get to the to Judica so like Really, after the second prison, the they they kind of uh, and, and say I kind of skip to the end. Well, not so much because if you look at the volume numbers, the Hades arc was the longest. Hmm. Well, let me see. It was. It was ten volumes, like volumes nineteen to twenty-eight. Twenty-eight, and then it's it's kind of weird because the Poseidon arc was fourteen to eighteen. And so 1 through 13, you might say, is the longest arc, but it's actually divided into the Galaxian Wars versus um, Athens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the first 13 volumes are definitely like a concrete saga that 
definitely it feels like everything is like all building up to like one concluding point, but definitely uh, subdividing that are different arcs. To me, it reminds me of like the Saiyan and Freeze arcs are two separate arcs of Dragon Ball, but they flow into each other so like seamlessly that you could almost think of it as like one continuous like uh, a saga of like this is all building up to this culmination of Goku going Super Saiyan and this defeating the the guy who sent him down this path to begin with, the guy who destroyed his home world. It kind of feels like with the that for those first thirteen volumes, like that whole uh, sanctuary saga, like it's it's all leading up to overthrowing a saga and restoring Sanctuary to making Sanctuary pure again and uh, and putting Athena like back in control of it. So mm-hmm. I feel like that whole Sanctuary arc is definitely really really uh, resonates in people's memories because of that because it's it's also like the longest part in the anime. Uh, I feel like it's it's the most referenced part because of how much of like a connected journey it feels. Whereas Poseidon and Hades, they build upon like each other, but they definitely do feel more separate than that those first thirteen volumes do. And I really like all the arcs, especially. But I think before we go into that. One thing that I keep, we keep forgetting to do on this podcast sometimes is we explain what the series is about. But, uh, I think, uh, again, just to reiterate, like, Seisei is the story of Knights of Athena or Saints of Athena. They're called Knights in the, uh, the English, uh, localizations, which is something that I'd like to ask about. But it's, it's Knights, uh, Saints of Athena who are tasked with, uh, protecting the Urch from the forces of other gods, and we follow the the core group of our five main characters: Pegasus, Seiya, uh, Swan Yoga, Dragon Shiryu, Andromeda Shun, and eventually Iki, uh, the Phoenix, becomes like the fifth man. He's kind of like a ringer, someone who who comes in mid arc to to bail everyone out of a jam. Well, actually, what's interesting, I was asked to write. An introductory article before yeah. the series got introduced, and this was back when it was appearing in Shonen Jump magazine English. So this appeared, I think, a month or two before the first chapter or the first couple chapters appeared in the English edition of Shonen Jump. Mm-hmm. And this is how I started it. What do you get when you combine <laughs> cute underdog heroes? who wear cool transforming armor based on the Western Zodiac, perform even cooler martial arts moves related to those constellations, and always manage to pull off miracles, <laughs> which usually involves re- rescuing the girl, with overall storyline that borrows from Greek mythology. A surefire spell for success, which is what Saint Seiya has been, both home and abroad. <laughs> yeah that's a yeah that's an awesome uh synopsis uh elevator pitch of saint sia and you wrote that for the uh december 2003 issue of shonen jump i have that right ahead of me 2003 i just don't remember yeah. which month yeah december i believe it's the 12th of the of 2003 so i think it's december but yeah this would be a month before uh, the series would premiere on Cartoon Network, the anime, and uh, also a month before the uh, first volume 
would come out from Viz. And Viz published the series between 2004 and 2010. So that was about a, a little over a five-year publication schedule. And originally you guys were releasing it bi-monthly. And then eventually in the Hades arc, I think you guys switched to every four months, I believe. Yeah, it slowed down a little bit at the end. Mm-hmm. But I think that this was that was a pretty good clip. Uh, this was definitely at a time where a lot of Shonen Jump manga was being published uh, and being brought over and published and released kind of like and various schedules that would fluctuate from time to time. Yu Yu Hakusho uh, was also another one that took a long time to kind of get old volumes published, even though that's an even shorter series. But yeah, there were a lot of classics around that time that like we're running through that late 2000 period and kind of ended in the early 2010s. Well, I think a lot of times the publication or the publication schedule for the manga ended up hinging on the presence or absence of the cartoon slash anime series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing though, I think kept on that bi-monthly schedule a good while after the cartoon network run. Cause I think it didn't last on cartoon network that long. It kept pace pretty well still. And that was a great displacement. I mean, as you know, Saint Seiya, or in its translated Knights of the Zodiac title, was very popular in Europe, Latin America, and other parts of Asia. So it always broke my heart how it didn't really take off in the U.S. Yeah, I I don't know if there's any concrete way to explain why that was, other than maybe it was just it missed the mark just a little bit too late. And I don't think the DIC uh, localization really helped with the way they edited that dub with blood to be green and stuff. <laughs> very, very weird uh, dub. Well, also, I think the lack of the merchandise coming over certainly didn't help. Yeah. At the time, it was really hard to get older manga to get an audience at all. And that was an ongoing problem. I feel like things are kind of changing now. I mean, it like brings intense joy to my heart that JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is, is popular now and people are, yeah. are getting like, and that's a manga that um, dates from before Saint Seiya. Um, but at the time, I mean, when Viz first started publishing JoJo, it did not do well. It's just um, the reprint now that the anime is out and now that there's I think more of an audience for older manga and manga that have kind of an offbeat style to them that we've been able to get an audience for them. So maybe maybe Saint Seiya just came out a little too early and we could have more success releasing it now. And it actually piggybacks on to the whole fact that I actually pitched Saint Seiya to Viz. I said, hey, it's a Shonen Jump title. Why? I mean, or are you guys interested in and the response I got back was actually, no, it's too old. And that mm. was several years before the anime got picked up. And it was after the anime was licensed to be released that I actually got a call or an email saying, hey, they're doing Saint Seiya the anime. We're thinking about publishing the manga are you still interested in translating it? And that's actually how I got the job. 
That's awesome. They knew you were uh, such a huge fan, and so they definitely made sure to reach out to you once, like, plans to publish it finally came through. For which I am eternally grateful. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have somebody who's, like, a hardcore, like, a fan working on a series, which, you know, it's not necessary, but it really helps, especially with a series like this where there's a lot of terminology and, yeah, specialized move names and everything, and you want to be able to get a translation that, you know, the fans will like and that will be accurate to what people are expecting from the series. And Mari was really great at that. I was also challenging in the sense that for at least while the anime was running, we were dictated to use whatever localization the anime did. Right. So Mm -hmm. it was only after the anime got canceled that we could actually go with a more accurate or more one-on-one transliteration of the character and move names. Mm-hmm. And that probably also explains why the Wiz release manga is also titled Knights of the Zodiac, because of how DIC renamed it. Well, I actually don't know. In that, <laughs> as far as I know, Chuisha is always very concerned about insulting Christian belief in its uh, in when mm. it brings over manga. And I think other Japanese publishers are too. They're very they are they're very aware that Western countries take Christian religion very seriously. And so they will off, often it will be the publisher's decision to change some sort of religious reference. And with the case of Knights of the Zodiac, as I understand it, and um, you would please have to go ask the people who actually made this decision. But as far as I know, it had, they had previously done use that title um, when they released it in some Latin American markets um, because they didn't want to fa- offend like Catholic countries. And so mm. the decision was made to use the um, that ti- that version of the ti- that title. Yeah, it's like Cabareos de los Zodiaco or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's happened a few other times. I mean, truth be told. If you look at the actual series and you've read the series, they really aren't saints. Knights would make more sense from um, from the meaning, from like the etymological um, sense of it, and that they mm-hmm. were these warriors dedicated to their liege. Yeah. yeah. Knights of Athena sounds, it sounds a lot like, you know, various like cowboy, like groups in like Christian culture or, in, or like secret societies and such. So it works pretty well. Um, I think Kuramata picked Saints because it sounds cool and and foreign and exotic, you know, which is fine. Well, and it also rhymes. Yeah. Sainto Seiya. So. <laughs> yeah. Alliterative and it definitely flows off the tongue really well. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty used to like referring to them as knights just from reading the the English version of the manga. And it does really fit because of, especially in the series, how it explores this, these ideas of like honor and like the chivalrousness and like, uh, we need to like fight till the bitter end to death. Like that, those are more things you would associate with knight than, uh, a saint for sure. And they wear armor, you know, which saints yeah. don't do all that much unless the saints <laughs> are also knights. And but the major flaw is they don't ride horses. Yeah. Oh, I mean, although. Say, uh, Pegasus, you know, maybe that's a... He's his own horse. Yeah, yeah, he's his own horse. And, uh, I don't know if there's any other horse-themed characters in in the series. uh, Kuramata, like, cleverly avoids having to draw almost anything except guys fighting. (laughs) Yeah. 
and Grecian stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say Shiryu rides on his dragon. Oh, yeah. Like a, a dragon, like, kind of spirals out of his fist and throws his enemies up into the air. That's pretty great. It's like the prototypical dragon fist from, like, Dragon Ball. Like, uh, maybe they drew inspiration for that when they came up with that move. Well, it's it's a Chinese dragon. Mm-hmm. I, same with uh, Dragon Ball. There were ties in with Chinese mythology, with Goku being the Monkey King. Yeah, I, that's another aspect of Saint Seiya that I really appreciate is that it is like it has multicultural inspirations, and the characters are multicultural too. I mean, as is revealed in the manga, they all have the same father, which is pretty crazy. It's creepy. It's, it's creepy. creepy and odd for sure. But one hundred children. And he's a grandfather, adoptive grandfather to, I guess, Sari, but it's like, yeah, he's really old dude, but he has, like, these really young kids, and it's like, when did he start having these kids? Like, was it after he got Sari? Because they, I don't think they're younger than Sari, so it's, they're it's older. so weird. Wait. Wait, it's listed somewhere. <laughs> uh, Let's see. They're all, I think, 13 to 14 when the series start. And mm-hmm. let me see what Athena was. Yeah, the, I think that's where the canon gets a little fuzzy. Because I yeah. think he had the kids and then realized he can use the kids in his attempt to gain the cloth. Yeah, that's what I I think. It's that he already had the kids, but that and then he used them later. He didn't just suddenly start going out and having the kids. But yeah, the Lord Nobu, uh, definitely not a good guy for sure. Very very strange. Yeah, Saori is thirteen when the series starts, so they're actually all of the same age. Yeah, so it's like. He had to have had them before uh, he he adopted Sari. So man, it's, it's there's a lot of weird stuff like that in Sia where it's like, whoa, like uh, this is getting a little too crazy and convoluted, and it's like madness, pure childlike madness. I think that you've described it uh, once, Shane, and it's like Saint Seiya is like living inside the mind of a ten year old boy. It really is. Yeah, it runs in pure rule of cool, like, just what sounds like the most awesome thing, and then, like, the implications of that he doesn't really think about. Yeah, it has a very childlike logic. It is like he's playing, like, with action figures to make up this story. <laughs> and, yeah, just like how a child would play his action figures, it's just a series of, like, I'm bashing them into each other. Yeah, for whatever reason, it had a huge following among girls, too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got a lot of, you know... Young guys with, like, very intense relationships between each other. Some of them are drawn as beautifully as Basami Kuramata can draw of <laughs> a young man. And, you know, they have very intense experiences and intense feelings that are constantly declaring their love for each other. So, yes, it was an extremely popular subject for Dijinji um, in the 80s. And the time when Dijinji was really starting to come up as a major thing, this was mm-hmm. like, one of the big titles. This was 
This was one of the manga that uh, the members of Clamp did Jinji about when they started out as a Jinji circle. They did a lot of Knights of the Zodiac, they did JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and they did Captain Tsubasa, which was a soccer manga that also had a big female following. Yeah. Yeah, what all these had in common was, yes, like, sort of, this sort of not, at least nominally handsome guys who have very close emotional relationships and get beat up a lot. This was all very popular material for, for fan comics. I actually didn't even think about the bromance. Oh, there's, this is a heavy, oh. very bromantic manga. Yeah, it's not, it's not as explicitly queer as JoJo's, but like, it definitely is. JoJo is more just straight up queer. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has actual queer characters, uh, sure, for sure, as and the manga is on. A very Tom of Finland aesthetic. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, I mean, sorry, Saint Seiya is a, just a intense bromance that you can write fan fiction about. Yeah, I, def- I definitely think it popularized the idea of having, like, these Bishonen protagonists. It's got a lot of Bishonen for, like, a 1980s uh, shonen manga. Mm-hmm. And really was ahead of its time in a way, because in the 90s, definitely, we had so many uh, shonen series pop up that had, that accumulated huge followings of female readers, like Yohaka Show and Kenshin and Slam Dunk. And I, the sports series have also had a huge, have always had a huge, like, following, uh, for, like, the same reasons of, of, you know, camaraderie, like, guys being very passionate about their feelings and open about their feelings and stuff. But, like, definitely with Battle Manga, we were seeing that more after Around Saiya. the 1990s, Shonen Jump realized that at least half, like, about half of its readers were girls, or close to half of its readers, and in girls' polls of, like, their favorite manga magazines, Shonen Jump was, coming out ahead of actual shoujo magazines. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so around that time, and, you know, it was, which makes sense, it was the biggest manga magazine. Everybody was reading it. So that was around the time that Shonen Jump started actively sort of courting its female audience and going for having elements that might attract uh, female readers. But Knights of the Zodiac is one of the series that uh, sort of made it a popular manga with uh, female readers. It was definitely one of the early magnets for like female fandom in the 80s and um it, it's- especially shun yeah, yeah. <laughs> shun, but it, and it's and it's got a good crossover appeal to everyone you know there's like there's not a lot of like sexism in it and stuff it's just dudes having adventures and punching each other and wearing yeah. fancy armor yeah it's just like very sincere and just pure in its love of blood and violence and battle. But it also has a kind of sentimental soul. And it is a little philosophical in the sense that Kuramata does, like, mediate kind of on the nature of, like, violence as a form of peacekeeping, whether that is morally right. Like, can people live your life without sin, without conflict? Even though it is, like, kind of the structure of the series is a series of battles. But there is some thought behind it about what are all these battles leading towards and, like, what are the larger implications in the lives of these characters? Like, what are they really fighting for? What does this all mean? And I kind of, I really appreciate that. I don't think I appreciated that the first time I read the series and was just caught up in the sheer, like, insanity of it. But I, as I was rereading the series, I kind of, like, was paying attention to certain moments where, like, characters were kind of musing philosophic. And I was, like, thinking, maybe Kuramata was, I definitely think Kuramata was thinking about some kind of a thematic core to the series about, like, what 
oldest wines are leaning towards. Like one scene in particular, like it's during the fight Shun has with uh, Aphrodite, and there, there's this flashback towards the end of the fight where he's kind of where Shun is like talking to Icky about like you know here's a map of the world and there's no borders on this map of the world. But so why are there people fighting? Why are there wars? And you know why is there all this tragedy? Like if people didn't get into conflict with each other and then like didn't fight to kill each other, you know, our parents would still be alive. People would be so much happier. And then Shun is like, you know, I want to bring peace to the whole world so there won't be any more kids like us. There's moments like that where it's like makes me think, you know, even though the series indulges in all this violence, I feel like Kuramata is like residing on the side of pacifism in a way that it's like these characters are working towards bringing the world to peace and are employing violence only kind of as a means to because they kind of have to. And it's kind of something that they're struggling with, and it's not something that they're necessarily happy to indulge them. With, with a few exceptions, like Mephisto is definitely uh, someone who is kind of gleefully indulgent in this violence. But then you have characters who feel they're more honor-bound, and they have to, you know, fight and kill in order to protect the world. Or, like, they have to sacrifice their lives in order to protect uh, the people they care about and keep peace. So I really do appreciate that about things. Is that it's not as meat-headed as you, as you would expect, that there is, there is a sentimental side. I definitely feel Shun is the heart of that. And there's definitely really interesting uh, stuff explored in the Hades arc with that. And the fact that Hades himself is also a character, even though he is supposed to be the one who wants to d- destroy the world, he also lives in this paradise uh, where... Apparently, there are other people there also who are like just kind of living peacefully, and it's like this beautiful world of flowers. And he just wants a world of peace too, and he believes the way that that can only happen is to get rid of humans because humans are only causing conflict. But he himself is like a kind and gentle soul almost, who only sees removing humans as like a necessity. So it's like there's really interesting stuff in there that I appreciate. But is there any like aspects of Saint Sia that really? stuck with you, like, just on a kind of emotional, philosophical level that, like, really resonated. I really appreciate the sincerity of it. And I, I'm looking at a page right now where they all, like, sort of lock hands and, and, like, make their bonds to each other. No matter what happens from now here on, you must not die. My valiant brother is born in this crucial time in this eternal galaxy of swirling stars, which is a great translation. Oh, yeah. Great translation job. But I do have a soft spot for manga where characters go up against impossible odds and yeah, talk about how even if their even if their lives are meaningless, it's worth it just to have done something, some small mm-hmm. thing in the world, which comes up a lot in this in this series. And I like the whole aesthetic of it. It's it got this um, really ends up having a very complicated supernatural universe going on and uh, Kuramata clearly puts a lot of love and like building all of the different settings and the stages the characters go through especially in the Hades arc at the end when it gets really elaborate and imaginative and um, for a manga that's sort of crudely drawn and mostly just guys punching each other it's really beautiful looking a lot of the time he's got a lot of amazing a lot of cool things with um, photocopying and screen tone and putting collages behind the characters and uh, there's like moments of really surprising beauty in this um 
really wacky, high energy fight manga. So th- those are all things I love about it. It's got a cosmic sensibility and um, on all levels. Mm-hmm. My favorite moment is actually not even related to the manga or the anime. I tried to find this video online and I just couldn't. But there was a segment a bunch of years ago of it was like Latin America or Spain's version of American Idol. And it was someone who was auditioning to get on the show. And he's Spanish speaking, doesn't know any Japanese, but auditions with Pegasus Fantasy. Yeah, I've seen that. And at the end, the judge is like, do you even know what the lyrics mean? And he's like, no, but you can just tell how passionate it is. (laughs) And I was like, wow. Yeah, that really shows, like, the the global reach of Sam, just, like, the emotional, how it inspires emotions in people just from, like, the strength of, like, its characters, its story, like, the, in the songs as well. Yeah, I just listened to the anime soundtrack to prep myself for this, and it is full <laughs> of really great artery-pumping songs. I always like, I am, fight. <laughs> yeah, I'm, fight. I'm sorry, I don't actually, I cannot actually sing all the lyrics from memory like the guy on the American on Idol. <laughs> but it is, it is, yeah, the anime has great music. I love the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The anime soundtrack is just so good. Like, uh, I, I need to, like, uh, watch more of the show itself, the original show. Because I've seen bits and pieces, but, like, every time I watch it, that soundtrack, it's probably one of the best shonen action soundtracks ever because it's like so adrenaline pumping like it's a soundtrack you can work out to for sure the only thing i think i don't like about them anime and maybe i'm being a little hypocritical because i haven't really watched much of anime but it always seemed to me from reading fan reviews too that and this is the original anime but the anime made Shun much more of a crybaby. Mm. And whereas it's not like he wasn't a crybaby in the manga, I don't feel like they really played it up the way they did in the anime. Yeah, I definitely don't feel Shun is weak-willed in the manga. He definitely is. Still has the conviction of the other knights. He just has more qualms and doubts about whether you know, violence is the best solution to conflict. So it is disappointing to see that the original anime interpreted that as like, oh, no, he is weak. He hesitates to fight, uh, which is not really his character. He's just a lot more thoughtful about, like, the implications of using power, which is why he holds back, like, his true power most of the time. Uh, and which is like kind of extrapolated on revealed in the fight with Aphrodite. That it's like he has so much potential, he has so much strength within him, but he doesn't want to use it without just cause, without, unless it's like he has no choice but to use extreme force. When I originally read the series a few years ago, I think my favorite character was definitely Phoenix Icky among the Lawn Saints because Icky is like, probably the most pure badass character just from the way the story frames him because Icky as a character is kind of designed to come in in the middle of every story arc and just 
destroy an enemy that is giving the other saints trouble and then just like uh continue on forward there like he uh destroys a bunch of silver saints and rescues everyone then he comes in in the sanctuary battles and takes on Shaka who had just defeated beating up everyone in the Poseidon arc, he takes out the guy who has all the illusions, saves everyone. Like, that's his char- whole character. So that, I thought he was pretty cool. Well, he's kind of like the anti-hero. Because he really is. Most of the time, you think of him almost like the villain. I mean, he's the epitome of rage. <laughs> he's like this, this molten core or pure anger. And yet, like you said, he comes in and sweeps away all the actual bad guys. So I see him more as like the the anti-hero trope. Yeah, he's definitely the most ruthless of all the saints. He he starts off the series as a villain and then he kind of grudgingly becomes an ally of his brothers and then as the series goes on he is more out and out hero but he's still like the kid with the most edge for sure. He's like the guy who comes in and is like just mercilessly pummels down his enemies and he takes he he ends up being able to take down some really high level opponents that like gives other characters trouble which is always a lot of fun so i i really liked icky a lot and i still do uh, but i think shun on my reread slowly gravitated towards being my favorite character because I do really, because I, I do think his character is really fascinating because he he is just as strong and ju- has just as much conviction to protect other people as the other knights. But he also is the one, uh, again, with the most doubts about whether violence is the right course of action. I, I think that as explored through the series and then as that ties in later with the 80s arc is really interesting in terms of like the grander kind of scope of, like, what the series is saying about, uh, of violence and about, like, the value of life in general and, like, the, you know, consequences of taking life. Uh, another moment of Shun's that I really, like, resonated with, like, was during the uh, Hades arc when they get to the uh, second prison, which is, like, the, the judgment hall uh, where that is uh, presided over by Renee, who, like, judges the sins of all who come through there. And he, like, shows Seiya, like, a vision of all the sins that he's done in his past, and, like, he kind of breaks Seiya. It's like, oh my god, I did so many horrible things. Am I really a bad person? And then Shun kind of steps in, and he says, I know we've hurt a lot of people, even if it was the name of justice, and, you know, I'll willingly accept punishments for my sins after I die. But, like, I wonder if it's possible for any human to live without sitting. Even the most pure and virtuous person must kill animals for food, pick flowers, and kill insects. And everyone sometimes has feelings of hate and envy. So if every one of those things is evil, it's like saying the very act of living is a sin. Is that true? And, like, Rene doesn't even have an answer. He just is saying, you know, only the gods can answer that. I just do what the task that I'm given. But I think that was... Yeah, that was a moment that really stuck out to me because it was like, it was mediating on the idea that like, there's no way to truly live a sin-free life, a, a life that cannot be looked at as unvirtuous in some respect because 
people are flawed and people make mistakes and sometimes people uh, do bad things. But is it right to write off humanity, to write off people for like the mistakes, to say that everyone is sinful and must be condemned uh, without any hope of redemption? Like, what does it really mean to live life then? Uh, like, how, what does it mean to live life as a good person, uh, to live a life without sin and causing harm to other people? And I really, I thought that question was really interesting. I think that Shun, as a character, is what is the medium for which Shuramata uses to explore that question. And so I think the decision to, to reveal that Shun was the vessel of Hades revealed a really interesting context and recontextualized Shun as a character and also kind of like, some of the things that the monk had uh, discussed before and shown before is like our idea of Hades going into the arc is that he is like, you know, what we think of a typical devil like character. Like he is like this pure evil character. And certainly from his like uh specters, we, they aren't like the most noble a bunch either. But then Hades as a character, he's not necessarily a purely evil character creature. He's not a purely evil person. He does want a world of peace, but what he's willing to get that world of peace, the people he's willing to hurt, that isn't right. And then it's that conflict then between like Hades, you can say that because of what he likes. Like he appreciates like the music of Orpheus. He lives in this world of flowers and he wants a world of peace and serenity like that. But then the violence he's willing to engage in in order to create that world, that is wrong. And that's why the saints have to fight him. And that's what puts him in the wrong mix and why he's the antagonist, even though his personality might not be that of like this tackling evil one who necessarily wants to destroy, to kill people. But like the fact that he thinks nothing of doing so in order to create the world he wants, that that is why the battle must continue. So, yeah, I really resonated with that idea, and then Shun is a character for exploring that. So, yeah, I, I think he Shun really stands out as MVP to me in a lot of ways. I do think his battles in the series are also really excellent as well. And uh I don't know if we mentioned this yet, but I, I do really appreciate that Shun as being coded at, with a stereotypically feminine qualities, being the most empathetic, being the most kind-hearted. I really appreciate a male character in a series like this, that's like that, to show different shades of masculinity, to show that it's not just that men can also be in touch with, uh, you know, their feelings, that they can be, that it's okay to be empathetic, it's okay to shed tears, it's okay to question whether what you're doing is right and uh, be pacifistic, not engage in violence. Like, I I do think uh, Shun is a really valuable character for th- those reasons, too. So I really appreciated uh, him in the series for that reason. But I, I was interested in what are your favorite characters in the series, uh, Mario and Shane? Oh, let me see. I am very fond of Shun. I like, I, I like the Shun and Iki relationship. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Iki is Shun's dark half. <laughs> Hall everybody's fat out of the fire when Shun will do it, but um, especially in the earlier parts of the series. So, like those, two, actually, the whole the, the whole central cast is actually pretty entertaining. I agree that Shun is probably the character that ends up being the most interesting and in, in a sort of uh, 
initially in a more quiet, you know, quiet way, but then uh, he does become enormously important in the Hades arc, and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, I don't know if there's a single character that I'm like totally in love with like that. I like I like the whole group working together. Mm-hmm. Mari, uh, I tend to like the fringe characters. <laughs> Not that in this case they're that fringe, but my first choice is the Aries Gold Saint Moo, mm. and part of it's because I'm an Aries. <laughs> But also, Mu has this very zen thing going. Not just Shaka, but Mu as well. And second, it's uh, Shiryu's uh, mentor, Doko. Mm. And the reason why is because... And sorry, there's like fire engine in the background. <laughs> but um, Doko, a.k.a. Roshi, is the Libra Saint. And his cloth is the coolest. In terms of having like ten different weapons in it, yeah, yeah. that one's an amazing diagram. Oh yeah, that might be my favorite clock for sure because I love how different characters can use those weapons, and they do over the course of the series in both Sanctuary Arc and in the Poseidon Arc. And uh, it's a really cool concept that like he's a saint that can like lend power to the other saints uh, through the use of his clock, but also. I really like how the clot assembles just on it as an armor, like when he does don it, so. But also the backstory where he's left over from the previous fight of the 12 palaces. Mm-hmm. Or actually, no, uh, the previous war against Hades. Mm-hmm. And he's actually kept himself on the waterfall so that he doesn't age. Yeah, and his part only beats 100,000 times a year, which is the amount of times that a person beats their heart in one day. So he's he's only aged like 260-something days. It's so crazy. He's been alive for almost three centuries, but he's barely aged a year. That was such a great reveal. Yeah, then he turns into a hot young guy and, you know, and and kicking butt. That is a great, oh, that is a great (laughs) storyline. I am a Taurus, and the Taurus Knight is not great. I don't like the Taurus Knight. Alderaan? Yeah. Yeah. I I have, like, the worst Zodiac sign. Taurus is pretty boring. Alderaan is uh, an unfortunate character. He's, like, gets the most shaft out of all the gold saints. Because he's the first one they fight in Sanctuary, and they, they beat him the easiest out of all of them, because they just break his horde, and he lets them go. And then in the Poseidon arc, like, there's this fake-out where he, he fights, like, Poseidon's, like, right-hand guy, and that, like, he he loses. And you think that he's dead, but then volumes later, it's real, no, he didn't actually die. And... Then he just gets killed off off screen in the Hades arc by just some no-name specter. And it's like, oh, man, Alderaan. Jeez. Oh, that's right. I, I like Mu also because he's the clothsmith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that dynamic in the, the beginning, how there are the gold saints who know something's up with Sanctuary, so they've kind of defected and are assisting the bronze saints. and. Mu and Roshi are def- were definitely really interesting in how they played mentorship role. 
and kind of had to guide the Bronze Age from the sidelines in order to, like, figure out, root out the evil of Sanctuary and then reclaim it for Tina. But I like most, so it's really hard to say because there's the characters I like, but in addition, there's the cloths that I really like. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Hades cloths I really like, especially the Three Kings, Radamanthus, mm-hmm. Ayakos, and Minos. And then the last two, Hypnos and Thanathos. Yeah. All the specters had really great designs. I really liked Acheron, the the guy to River Styx design. I just like how funky his cloth looks. He has this weird helmet he, with these like red bug eyes. I really like that guy's design a lot. And yeah, I like uh, oh, a Papillon is another really great one where he's like this butterfly specter. And I like the the whole transformation gimmick he had, where he's like he's he appears with like this worm at the start, and then he like goes into a cocoon, and then he hatches into the butterfly. And that was a really good fight too, Moo versus Papillon, which I guess brings us to another subject. Like, what are your favorite fights in the series? I like That's anything. A good question. Yeah, I know. Well, like, I'm trying to remember. What happens in like all these battles? <laughs> There's a lot going on. I I like uh, I like anytime Shiryu fights because he gets beat up the most. That's always fun. <laughs> uh, he like has oh, like he loses his eyes like twice in the series. It's amazing. Yeah, got his own eyes. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, he he goes blind twice. It's crazy. Like, and then I really like Icky's fights because Icky has his whole illusion thing, so he makes his enemies see like a horrible death, and that shocks them and shocks their confidence, and then he like easily crushes them. No, oh, even and, better when he makes them think they've won, but in fact they're already dead. Oh. Yeah, that's always so good. <laughs> the other thing that I liked about the manga over the anime is you don't have to sit through the actual action because mm-hmm. I really always felt bad for Hyoga because they'd always start him off flapping his wings. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Saint C is a really fast read because it's so action packed. Uh, in the anime, especially adapting it back then while the manga was still writing, they definitely would have to have slowed it down. But like the manga itself is like a really uh, fast read. You you get through a good clip, but yeah, I I think my my absolute favorite fight in the series was uh, Saga, Camus, and Shura against Virgo Shaka in the Hades arc, because that one had like a a lot of emotion behind it. Because yeah, there's a lot of really I, great action scenes in the Hades arc. Oh yeah. Because, yeah, with that fight, like, it's it's like a, a fight that no one really wants to have, but has to happen in order for the characters to achieve their goals. Because Saga and his team, they need to get to Atina to kind of, they need to pre- pretend execute her before Hades Spectres can, so that she can travel into uh, hell alive using her eight, se- eight cents and then... Uh, you know, confront Hades. So they have to get to her before the other specters, and they're being watched by Hades and uh, the uh, the Hell Butterfly. So we, they can't like reveal their their true intentions to the other Gold Knights. But 
And then Shaka is like standing in their way and like Shaka is like prepared, willing to die, uh, in order to stop them. And he's just too strong for them to defeat without making a sacrifice. And so they have to pull out the Athena exclamation. And it's like a huge uh, quandary for them to do that because by using that move, they're essentially like uh, sacrificing their own pride and their own souls. Like all their honor and integrity are like flushed down the drain. So it's like them like having to like really swallow their pride and not only do that, but in order to kill their friend, they have to use this forbidden move. And then on Shaka's end, like he is like preparing for this scenario. He's preparing to like accept debt. And you have this great flashback, which is like him like questioning like why people suffer. What is the point of life if people go through its suffering? And then he's being advised, I guess, by his unseen mentor. We just see like this statue in like this Buddhist temple, but talk back to him. But it's like, you know, Shaka, there is also joy in life. Life is not purely uh, suffering. And you shouldn't be saddened by the fact that there is hardship uh, in the world. And you shouldn't be saddened by the fact that everything will die. Because that is just the the state of life. But if you truly understand, like, the, the value of life. And then if you understand, like, what it means to like live beyond debt, then you can like achieve like a a state kind of beyond godliness. And so that really has a, a beautiful conclusion where it's like they use these Tina exclamation on Shaka. Like Shaka at first it appears Shaka survived, but then we kind of realize no, Shaka has actually already been killed and his spirit is just lingering briefly, like and he goes to the solitaries and like just admires their beauty and just the transience of life and the universe and like is at peace with the idea of death. And of course we, it's revealed later that Chaka didn't actually die. Like he used his eight cents to travel into the hell. So, but it's still like just the moment it has just so much like emotion uh, behind it. And I really like the philosophy behind it of like, like valuing the gift of life and then, you know, not as thinking of debt as a tragedy, but thinking of that as, as something to make peace with as a part of life and, uh, and what gives living value. And so that entire fight, I just, that just had so much power on it. And, and of course the, the great moment of like when the Athena exclamation is used and then you have like the big flash as, uh, it and Chaka's like attack clashes and the, the scene slowly fades to white. And you have like this blank page and it's just to signify Shaka kind of being reduced to nothingness. And like, I like how, uh, apparently, uh, readers at the time, uh, Kuramata kind of mentions this in the beginning of like the next volume and his opening blur that like people were confused about what that meant, but like it was really intentional to kind of show like this idea of Shaka just being kind of reduced into oblivion. I thought that was just such a clever use of like, a blank page to kind of illustrate like so- something so poignant and poetic. So that fight really, I think stands out to me as my favorite in the series for sure. Yeah. Kuramata really outdoes himself in the Hades arc. I love the entire series, but um, I feel like Hades really goes above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Hades arc is definitely like one of my all time favorite uh, shonen arcs. Yeah. I mean, it's got a lot of, a lot of great, 
action, there's very high stakes, the world building in this extremely imaginative and because he's like built up everything of the previous arcs um there's a lot of emotional stakes too it's like like he brings back all the dead characters in the previous storylines and they all have to fight all over again and there's a lot of there's a lot of sacrifice and angst and it's just there's a lot going on in the hades storyline yeah he pulls no punches like by the end of that arc it's like almost everyone has sacrificed themselves like, the gold saints have all sacrificed themselves. Seiya sacrifices himself. And then it kind of ends on this uncertain note, like, will Athena and the surviving Bronzings be able to escape Elysium before it all crumbles down? And it's like a hopeful note, because Seika believes that everyone will return, including Seiya. But, like, I think it's pretty bold, and, like, it was pretty powerful to leave it open, ended like that, on this optimistic note, but, like, still on this... This note of this uh, entire battle in some way has has been kind of a tragic orde- ordeal, but it has been in the pursuit of, of peace and a better world. So I really, really appreciated that. Yeah, it's a surprisingly ambivalent ending. I really like it. Mm-hmm. And Kuramata, I think, did continue the story from there in Next Dimension. No, actually, technically, the conclusion was supposed to be the Olympus arc, which mm. he started in Saint Seiya G. Oh, okay. And that was published. Let's see. Uh, Saint Seiya G episode G was uh, began in two thousand three. Okay. And it was uh, published by Akita Shoten in Monthly Champion Red. Mm-hmm. And then the year before was when the anime of the Hades arc was released. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after episode G, you got The Lost Canvas and Next Dimension. Mm-hmm. And Lost Canvas and Next Dimension, I haven't read these because they haven't been uh, licensed, but I think originally they were supposed to be, like, parallel stories like one was telling the the past of what happened in the previous war between Athena and Hades following like the previous Pegasus saint and then next dimension was like the story past Hades that was like them trying to revive Seiya by going back into the past but then apparently they diverged but I'm really interested in reading hopefully one day experiencing both uh these stories because it's kind of crazy that in a way, Saint Seiya hasn't really, truly ended because the story has continued. Oh, okay. I'm looking at this. Saint Seiya episode G was supposed to be the Olympus arc, but actually ended up being almost like a prequel. Mm. And it covered, let's see. Oh, it was talking about the brother of the original Sagittarius Gold Saint. Yeah, Iolos. And was protecting Earth from the Titans. And yes, between Lost Canvas and Next Dimension, both of which ran at the same time, and some of it overlapped with Episode G, if I remember correctly, one of them was about the previous Hades arc, and one of them, I think, did pick up the story of Olympus arc. Mm Mm-hmm. But I might be wrong. <laughs> I think that's right. And I think actually they also made a film in the early 2000s that was also 
a version of that Olympus arc, but I think that has been considered non-canon now. That's also one I don't think that has ever been licensed over here, even though the original four films from when the show is running happen. And, uh, yeah, but say, uh, like the stuff beyond the original manga seems kind of complicated and there's not a real good way to kind of experience them since they're not available. But I really appreciate just the, the original 28 volume run and I appreciate that original ending a lot. It's kind of like the, the ending of Dragon Ball. I like that it's open ended and you can imagine the possibilities from there. Yeah. Yeah, it says that Lost Canvas was the uh, story of the previous Pegasus and the previous Hades. Mm-hmm. And then the next dimension was, let's see, is the epilogue after the original series Hades arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, man... I think that uh, Lost Canvas was adapted into uh, an anime, but I hope one day Next Dimension and G are as well, because I think those at least might have a chance of getting uh, spread over here and like a form of the story that could be uh, experienced. Because I definitely do want to one day kind of reach out and experience the other sequels and spin-offs to say, uh, I really like, uh, Saintia's show a lot. One that's, that's also kind of like a prequel, then it kind of becomes an interquel that kind of is about, like, uh, Saintia's, which are like handmaidens to Athena. And that I find a lot of fun. And I'm glad that is being put out over here by Seven Seas, cause, uh, more Saintia manga, especially like a, a Saintia manga that's focused on a old female cast of saints is really awesome. Yeah, I've only read the first volume of Saintia's show, but it looks it looks very cool. It looks very mm-hmm. cute. It's pretty cool. Yeah. But the art is really gorgeous. I love the character yeah, designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I, I guess uh we kinda went over like uh a lot of the things we liked about the manga. I kinda wanna get your kinda thoughts just overall and like how this uh, the story of Saintia, like just what do you guys think about like the structure of the arcs, like the the formula that the arcs kind of have of, like, kind of every arc is based around the same idea of, like, Athena is kind of put in a position where she is going to die, and the saints have to fight against a bunch of enemies to rescue her. So every arc is based on, like, that same template. But I definitely think that Hades, like, has so much more built on top to it and truly transcends, like, the formula that the previous arcs established becomes something, like, truly amazing. But I, like, what do you think about, like, how St. Seiya's story structure is, like, a series of battles? Yeah, I mean, actually, each arc is a little more complicated than the, the one before, I think. The first the first arc is pretty simple, as they're just going from room to room, fighting one guy after another until they get to the main guy. And then the Poseidon arc adds a little more complication to that, where they have to go into Poseidon's realm and... My favorite detail of the Poseidon arc is that they have to destroy these 12 pillars under the mm-hmm. sea. And their way of doing this is just physically throwing themselves at the pillars. <laughs> which is well, just, actually... Well, they try to, but then yeah. they have to use the the weapons from Doko's Arbor, the Libra Arbor. Yes, and then they get to the point with the last one where they can't do it, and they have to just, like, throw themselves at it. <laughs> it's the most Saint Seiya solution to a problem. <laughs> 
It's great. Um, and so that, that gets a little more complicated. They're battling for these pillars. They have to like use some creativity to figure out how to like topple each of the pillars after they beat these guys. And then Hades gets a lot more complicated with like all the, the circles of hell and the different prisons and moving from place to place and ultimately having to go on this battle with Hades. It's a lot more sort of character based and, and it's not really about just fighting. So yeah, I mean, I think each arc gets a little more sophisticated than the one before it, and it's it's a nice build-up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Poseidon arc was seven pillars for the seven oceans, mm-hmm. plus a central. One they can't knock down. Yeah. And it makes sense that there was supposed to be another arc, which was Olympus and Zeus. Yeah, because, they were take on Zeus. Yeah, because it's the three brothers that make up what we now consider the Hellenic Greek Olympian god pantheon. Mm-hmm. But I really wonder how they would have stretched it out. It almost seems better that it ended with the Hades arc because the climax was so huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as much as I'd like to see them storming heaven and taking on Zeus, the <laughs> Hades arc is pretty hard to top. Yeah, I mean, the way Hades' arc ends, like, so many of the characters, the goal scenes are all gone, so you have to, like, really find new saints to bring in, I think. Like, you have to, like, recruit more people. Like, uh, the current generation of bronze knights, they might have to graduate to becoming gold knights. Like, you have to... I Like, it'd definitely be a struggle to see, like... Uh, continue to fight against, like, a greater force than even the Hades. Because Hades is, like, force was, like, 108 specters, and I don't think we saw all of them, or, like, we blew through most of them. But, like, they were so tough that they beat down the entire fighting force of Sanctuary. So it's like, how could they even top that? How could they tackle the forces of Zeus? Like, it'd be, that'd be insane. But, it's too bad that Seiya did end before Kuramata really uh, got a chance to do, like, the other stories he had in mind. At the same time, I feel like it ended at a good place. It felt like it had a really healthy run. I mean, five years, 28 volumes. Like, to me, that's, like, a really solid run for a, for a shonen action manga. I feel that way. I mean, obviously, there's shonen manga that have gone on far, far longer than that, and and I've worked on some of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the editor for um, Case Closed, aka Detective. Another one that has a different American than English title, but uh, that one, I'm on volume... I think I'm on volume 80 or 81 on that right now, so (laughs) that's a commitment. But yeah, no, I I think that's a pretty good length. Sensei has a pretty good length for for a manga. And it has a pretty, it, it has a nice ending too. It, it it wraps things up really nicely, mm-hmm. which you don't always get in, especially in shonen jump manga where they do try to keep a successful franchise going as long as humanly possible. So it's nice yeah. to see that it's a pretty cool, a good, a really strong final finale and uh, and a pretty cool ending. Yeah, reading Saint Seiya's ending, I don't, I, you don't get the sense that it was rushed because it feels as fast paced as any of the other parts of the series. And it's definitely, it definitely feels like it wraps up most of the loose ends in contrast to other long running manga that had to like really put the brakes on a lot earlier than they might have attended and not get to explore all the possibilities they wanted to. So I think Saint Seiya, and especially 
you know, it might have ended earlier than Kuramatawana, but the legacy has lived on to the point that there are multiple different Saint Seiya sequels and spinoffs that are currently running. So it's lived on a popular consciousness and endured to this day. Well, it's a hugely influential manga. I mean, certainly most manga in Shonen Jump and Shonen manga in general uh, are very heavily influenced by it. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is there was another series which I just found, I'm just looking on Wikipedia, but it looks like it was published right after Sensei, also by Kurumada, but it was actually kind of like Saint Seiya and Giver fused. Hmm. But it also had armor, like transforming armor, but there's this whole like bionic cyborg type of theme to it too. That's interesting. Man, I'd like to check out more of Kuramata's series because Seiya and Bidex, I think, are the only manga of his that have ever been published in English. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Oh, Bidex? Yeah. Yeah, Tokyo Pop published that, I think. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, I actually managed to collect the entire run of that, but I haven't I gotten a chance to read it yet. But definitely, I think uh, I'll get... I'll probably try that out after the Seiya reread because I... Now I'm, like, in the zone that, oh, I want to read more Kuramata stuff again. But, like, he's done, like, dozens of manga, and it's, like, especially stuff like Ring Me Kakuro and Fumanu Kojiro, some of his longer stuff, I'd like to see, like, what they were like and maybe get a chance. But, uh, sadly, I guess maybe his aesthetic is just not appealing to a lot of people nowadays. I think it definitely feels like this is an old-school series. And I definitely know that some people, you know, were not really into the series because they felt that they couldn't get into the art. Which is a shame for me. Manga's all about the story and the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually really like Kuramata's arc. I think, in a sense, I think his character designs, like, there is, like, a flat aesthetic, but at the same time, his environments are so detailed and beautiful, and those collage backgrounds he does for, like, all the attacks of the characters are so intricate and, like, impressive. Uh, the details in, like, the Galaction Explosion or, like, Virgo Shaka's, like, the insane, like, murals that are all behind him as he's doing, like, his big attack, those are so complexly drawn. I think that Kermana's art is really impressive in a lot of the series. It's truly original. He's really develops a whole aesthetic that I don't really, I mean, it's been widely copied over the years, but I don't think there's anything else quite like it. Mm-hmm. And definitely, like, the amount of thought he puts into the design work. Like, designing all the clots and, like, really thinking where each piece fits on a person and how it forms the armor from, like, its base statue form, like, that's a lot of detail and a lot of thought that's put into something that you, you wouldn't expect, you know, so much thought to be put into. But, like, it, it adds so much more layer to the series uh, in how to appreciate it. And especially, you know, it makes you want to, oh, man, I want to assemble these clots. I want to, like, really pick apart, like, how these designs work. So I really love it from a design perspective. But I think we covered a lot of, like, what we love about the, the Saint Seiya manga. I guess uh, I have a few more questions about the production of the series and then a few questions of fan, from fans. But do we want to kind of 
give like our, our final thesis maybe on like what the appeal of Saint Say is, why you should read it, why we love it. Do either of you, Shannon or Mary, wanna Yeah, I think if you love I think if you love manga that you have to read Saint Seiya. And especially if you love Shonen manga, then you really need to look at this and see where a lot of the material and ideas and tropes in modern shonen manga came from. It's a big influence on shoujo manga, too. I mean, series like um, Clamp's Knight's uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth are like very heavily indebted to Saint Seiya, and, uh, even to the point of the title being similarly set up <laughs> and it's it's a huge influence on other series but it's like lots of fun on its own it's an, it's just enormously entertaining to read and mm-hmm. it, like you pointed out it's a, it's a quick read too because it's very action heavy and uh, there's always something happening and really i do think the hades arc is one of the best the best storylines in an action manga um, it's really good mm-hmm. i um i guess my fondest wish is if we can re-release Saint Seiya with all the original names. Mm. And partly because one of my pet peeves, and one of the things I actually use when I've made presentations about manga translations, is how some of the names were localized. Not that they were, were localized, but what the final choice was. And I don't know who made the choice and how it was made but my biggest pet peeve was the silver whale saint oh yeah moses his name was moses you can see that he's missing an eye with a scar over his eye and his whale is a huge white whale (laughs) and he was named moses because he parts the seas and I understand why we couldn't use Moses, but the fact that they choose Morris, I'm like, Morris, where did Morris come from? <laughs> and especially to me as a child of the 80s and 90s, Morris was an orange tabby cat that advertised cat food. So I couldn't reconcile this magnificent whale saint with an orange cat. And I was like, why couldn't we use Moby, like, for Moby Dick? Or Ahab. Or Ahab. (laughs) And then the fact that Death Mask became Mephisto was less objectionable, but I was like, if the whole point was to try to get away from religion, I mean, Mephisto is short for Mephistopheles. (laughs) And then I was like, and no one found it objectionable that the Pisces saint was Aphrodite, but he's male. (laughs) <laughs> so it was really interesting mm-hmm. yeah and with Mephisto I mean that mask like that name change is also kind of ironic because like uh, that mask original like that mask literally was creating death masks in his temple of all the people he killed so like he kind of was referencing his what he did to other people in his own name in, in a sense and so changing it to Mephisto, I think you're kind of losing, like, the joke there. The, kind of the pun. The twisted pun or whatever. And, but yeah, you're, that's also a good point. It's like, it's still a religious reference. and It's kind of weird. I, I think we we actually got a question about that but from someone who was, like, wondering why Moses was changed to Morris, but Centaurus Babel's name was kept. I was about to bring that up. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a little inconsistent in what names get changed for what reasons. Yep. I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, it would, if it had been up to me, I would change nobody's name. Uh, but it's, um, usually with the name changes, unless it's something that's mandated by the publisher, which with the Japanese publisher, a lot of the name changes would have come from the anime company. We have to do, we were just, Viz would just make this change to, to be in line with the anime. Because mm-hmm. we don't usually, we don't usually do that. But at the time, it was pretty common for anime localizers to do name changes left and right. And my understanding, although Shannon, you can correct me, is that because the anime wasn't translated or licensed and trans translated by Viz, that's why there probably wasn't little or any collaboration between Viz and DIC in the localization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. If Viz, I mean, if Viz had been in charge, uh, handled the um, anime, we probably would probably wouldn't have changed names because Viz doesn't usually do that with anime or with manga. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we have to go along with what DIC or for kids wants to do. Yeah, like that's still, uh, I know something that One Piece fans are frustrated to say that Solo, I mean, Zoro is still Zolo in the English translation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just one carryover from the Four Kids era that hasn't been changed, even though Funimation's dub retains Zoro's name as Zoro. So it's just, it's just an unfortunate artifact of like what the licensing deal was like at the time. It's really interesting that's in some, some versions of things names are changed, some versions things aren't changed. Like in Dragon Ball, it's interesting that, you know, some characters retain their Japanese names like Kororin and Tenshinhan and that others would have name changes. Like, uh, I think in the original run, at least, uh, Mr. Satan was Hercule and then Boo was spelled B-O-O instead of B-U-U and referred to as a Jin instead of a Majin. So it was like stuff like that that was really interesting to me when I was like comparing versions as a kid. Well, sometimes yeah. with the with the spellings of characters' names, that's just we just have to choose because it does not have a one to one translation to Japanese characters. Mm-hmm. That was what was easy about a lot of Saint Seiya is a lot of the character names were taken from mythology as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as long as there was, um, as long as there was. The precedent, we just went with the most common English translation. Mm-hmm. And then there was that one or two odd saint names that actually didn't seem to have an equivalent. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ones where we had to make up. But there was, there were series, not Saint Seiya, where there would have been English names that would make more sense based on the pronunciation of the names and where the names originated, like the etymology of the name. Mm -hmm. But the author or the publisher may have already romanized it. So we ended up having to go with the romanized name, even though there was an actual English word that would match the name. Wow. That's pretty common. In the case of St. Seiya, we did have... um... It was something that uh, the Cosmo is called Cosmo as opposed to Cosmos, which might make more sense in English because that's the way Kuramata wants it. I see. It's like with the the new Netflix dub of Evangelion, how they refer to the 
them as the children, like the third children, first children instead of child, which was more kind of grammatically correct in English and what the ADV used. But like, Kara is, is like, was like, no, this is the terminology we prefer, children. So it's, that's kind of an interesting tidbit, I think. That Cosmo is what was used because that was her model preferred. He w- definitely wanted to be Cosmo with no mm-hmm. Yes. And were there, like, any particular... Like, for most characters, you had, like, that already, like, a reference point for how their name would be spelled or localized as. But do you remember, like, any particular names or attacks or terminology that was very difficult to localize that you you didn't immediately, like, have, like, a one-to-one, like, you knew what to translate this as? Hmm. Not that I could recall. But there were a lot of things that I did have to look up on the internet just because I wanted to make sure I got a good spelling. And Hmm. I remember trying to find, like, Greek alphabets and Russian alphabet just to see if the Cyrillic that Kurumara used is pronounced the way that it was Romanized and was Romanized that actually matches what the translation was. Hmm. And then, let's see. The other thing about how in the Hades arc, I had to make sure to leave translator's notes that, yes, this is actually the third circle of Dante, but we're calling it the second prison. <laughs> yeah, she did. She did leave the, she did give me these notes. <laughs> and I made sure that the writing on the top of the arch at the beginning when they get to the underworld actually did say abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And originally was that was the phrasing of that different? And then it was like adapted to be like more like the, the phrase that, uh, you know, the abandon all hope phrase that is more properly like, uh, known. I think it depends also on who does the Greek to English translation. Mm. But I did see that the actual Greek writing was what it was. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of times in other manga, when they have someone reading an English newspaper, they just take random English newspaper and transpose it, or they take <laughs> random English and transpose it. This was actual Greek writing. Mm, nice. And then the one thing I wish was there's the, um, it's like this minor, minor character at the beginning called Marquino, and he's just a foot soldier who is at the Hall of Judgment. But there's a separate book called the Saint Seiya Encyclopedia. It's awesome. It actually has all the cloth guides. It has interviews with Kurumada and a bunch of other people. It has some explanations of the different characters and different story arcs. But it also lists all the attacks of all the characters, whether those attacks actually appeared in the manga and anime or not. And Marquino's attacks were Big Fart (laughs) and Little Belch. Oh, wow. I like to see how that would be employed in a fighting game. You just well, have Marquito in a fighting game. You know, game. it's funny because 
I think that was one of the attacks that Naruto used against Kiba originally. <laughs> when he found out that Kiba's sense of smell is almost as sharp as the ninja dogs. <laughs> so he farts in Kiba's face. <laughs> yeah, man. If only they included that in one of the Naruto games, where they run you through the story, and you have to use that in order to win a battle with Kiba. <laughs> but, wow, that's a fun little tidbit. But I'm also wondering, like, sound effects. All the sound effects in the manga are, of course, like, translated and uh, retouched up. So I was, like, wondering, like, what were some of your favorite sound effects, like, to translate? Like, were any, like, really memorable ones? Yes. Saint Seiya's sound effects are like famous so we had to be very careful with those i mean seriously if, if you're like a, a japanese manga fan you would recognize karamata's effects lottery i've seen it i've seen it parodied in other manga so that was that was a situation where i really wanted to do right by the effects and of course mari does a great job translating the effect which is well thank you yeah of course i mean it's i think effects translation it's pretty easy to get the literal effects because they're um they're in the borrowed characters, so you can sound them out. Translating them to something that makes sense in English is not always as easy, but I think we kept them as close to the Japanese version as possible. There are a lot of like dooms and dunes and bakuns going on here. And I was lucky enough, we were lucky enough to have um, some letterers who worked really hard to um, create fonts for the effects that would look very similar to Kuramata's um, lettering. Especially the, um, yeah, the letters we got near the end were very good. And um, I was very happy to be able to have do pages where the effects are in English, but still look about the same as they look in the original. Nice. The one that, um, the one that I remember having to alter. Oh, and also sometimes, sometimes Kuramata would write the effects in English characters. So that, in Roman characters. So, you know, then we would just leave them alone. Ooh, nice. Save some work. Yes, except that there was only one where we changed it, where um, he had a, an effect written in Roman characters that was B-A-C-O-O-O-O-N. And it just looked like the character was shouting, Bacon! <laughs> so I think we changed, changed it to C to a K, so it wouldn't look exactly like Bacon. <laughs> That'd be funny. Like, he was like, we're yelling bacon, attacking... Bacon would be bacon. another amazing attack. <laughs> um, I have to admit, I didn't have time to find all my old scripts. So, much as I'd like to take credit for all of the effects, we were still working with adapters at the time. So I can't promise that all of the effects were actually my original effects from my original script. And how many of them might have been rewritten? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I kept them pretty similar because I did want to keep them pretty similar to the sound effects in, in Saint Seiya. Because the like, sound effects are so important to that manga. I, I tried not to fuck around with them too much. The nice thing was we could really go with American comics effects, which helped too. Mm-hmm. And were the sound effects like hand-drawn relettered at the time, or was this uh, where you guys were using, like, digital to replace sound effects? Yeah, they would have been using fonts, although we had a letterer, and I'm sorry, it's Arthur, I forget his last name. Um, One of the letterers went to a lot of trouble to um, just retouch the 
original art just enough to turn it into English language, yeah, into Roman characters. And didn't all without, and so he did not always use a font. Sometimes he would like change them on Photoshop, which was great. Uh, but yes, mm-hmm. we have um, we have effects fonts, and that's what are usually used. And I forget uh, Shannon. Mm-hmm. Back then, was this already when you were getting digital files, or was it still in the day and age? I remember hearing stores where they would use steam to melt the glue, and then hand scanning <laughs> pages. Um, well, Viz didn't do that because we, 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 yes, other publishers did. And you can tell by the quality of the pages. <laughs> uh, we did used to get physical photo stats from the publishers, which just be big old photo stats of the, the artwork. By the time we were doing uh, St. Seiya, it was uh, digital. Yeah. Although, I mean, actually, yeah, Japanese companies tend to be pretty old school technologically, surprisingly enough. And so a lot of, I mean, definitely Kuramata's work is extremely old school. So there's no, there's no such thing as like layers. Everything's done on hand and the effects are just part of the artwork. So it's very tricky to retouch. But even now, even on modern manga, it's the same way. Like artists are only very gradually moving to working digitally. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, um, the one thing about redoing that, and you asked me, you actually asked me about this in the preliminary questions. Um, one odd thing about translating it was that um, we had to use the art that were from the Bunkoban, the perfect collections, instead of the Tonkoban. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tonkoban are the regular size ones, and then if you see a, like an omnibus edition, it's called it'll be called sometimes called a perfect collection in English. That's a Bunkoban, and Kuramata wanted us to work from the perfect editions because he had one page where the art was different, and he wanted to make sure we we changed the page <laughs> for his updated art. But this meant that we had to like redo the page numbers on like everything and like work very hard to make sure everything matched up. Uh, Cause we were sort of translating from the Tonka bonds, but then using the art from the Blinka bonds. Actually, hmm. if I remember correctly, this was before the actual perfect edition came out. So the, there were Blinka bond, but they were the regular small size Blinka bond. They were the tiny ones. Yes, the ones that are shorter than a Tonkoban. Yes. Yeah, and then the perfect editions tend to be about the size of a larger trade edition paperback U.S. book. So about the size of this edition, but the Saint Seiya perfect edition were actually oversized. Huh. Yeah, those were not out then. So yes, it was the teeny tiny little, nah, the little tiny guys. The tiny fat books. And uh, the one page that had to be changed uh, was a page that has a big shot of uh, the northern lights of the Aurora Borealis. Because when Kuramata first drew it, he apparently had no idea what the Aurora Borealis looked like. And just drew some lights <laughs> in the sky. And at some point, somebody told him that was wrong. So he did a corrected page where he drew some, he drew them as, yeah, correctly. And he really wanted to make sure that we used his correct drawing of the northern lights. I have to look that up. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it, yeah. The original, the the first Tonkabon, the Northern Lights just looked wow. like some lights in the air, and then like he had to draw he drew the proper little squiggle shape that they are. And I was oh, so nice. nervous when it finally got to that volume because I just knew I was so <laughs> terrified that I was going to screw it up and use the old version of the art, and then this entire this entire project would be for naught. But <laughs> we got it in there. It looked correct. That's the version he wanted. Awesome. Do you know which volume that was in? 
No, I'd have to look it up. It's obviously one of the storylines. Um, or Hyoga. Yes, with Hyoga. It's probably when he goes back or he flashes back to one of the last scenes with his mother. Yeah, it's a flashback. Maybe the one in Volume 13, where it's like, the, like kind of like a bonus chapter. Yeah, is. it's somewhere around there. Oh yeah, there was that bonus chapter. I forgot about that. But yeah, it's either his fight against Camus, or I think there was also a, a brief flashback during the whole Poseidon chapter, because it covers his original training with the boy that becomes a Kraken saint. Yeah, Isaac. Kraken Isaac, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something I'd like to hunt down later and kind of see, oh, so this is the page that he, he requests to be changed. But, yeah, you actually drew a little reference to that in one of your Narbonic comics, too. So that's a really cool detail. Was there any other, like, pages uh, or, like, art that Kurabata had requested you guys to, like, replace? During nope, that was the... it. That was okay. So the, the rest of the art is, like, from the Bukumban edition. It all had to be from the Bukumban for the sake of that one page, yes. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool story. And uh, so, like, it sounds like the, the process of working on St. had a lot of challenges, but was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. And it? here I was, only thinking we're using the Bukumban because the, <laughs> it was really hard to find print editions of the original Tankobon. <laughs> yeah, it I mean we we could we got the I had the Tonkabon, I had the Tonkabon and the Bunkabon to refer to for it. So I mean that's something that we could get off of Shueisha, fortunately. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my final questions I guess are kind of how the reception of the manga was while Wiz was publishing it. So I guess the the start off, like the when the volumes were first coming out, like was there any like marketing effort like attempts to like tie it in the release of the manga like with the promotion of the anime to kind of get the word out there for it and then uh do you think that the the series eventually found an audience as it continued to be published yeah it had a hard time finding an audience again it was a time that it was really hard to get interest in older manga and the one hope for doing that would be if the anime was really popular which Mm -hmm. Has eventually happened with like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and with some other series. So I mean, I actually have hope that if you know people came back to Saint Seiya at some point and um, put it out again, it could actually find. I think it could actually find an audience now because there's a bigger and more. The manga audience is a lot more diverse in their interests than I think they were ten or fifteen years ago. There's a lot more interest in older manga. I think there's a lot of interest in uh, just different types of tournament and fighting manga that uh, people haven't seen before. And and it's and it's a really cool series. So it it did not do huge numbers when it came out, but I think it it could still have an I think it could still have an audience, and I have great I have great faith in it. I was just sad because I felt like the series could not have succeeded only because it was one of the few series where I actually thought the art style of the anime was more old fashioned than the artwork in the manga. Yeah, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. And I really think that did not do the manga as much justice as it could. And I think maybe, not that I've seen enough of the JoJo anime, but I believe the JoJo anime either came out much later than the manga or at least stopped and restarted. 
Is that correct? The anime started in 2012. Yeah, right? there's a recent anime that people can get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel that with Saint Seiya, having the anime, which was the original anime, didn't help catch audiences' attention. And then, like I said, also not having the figures kind of hurt, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm hoping that perhaps the new Netflix show does interest people to uh, seeking out Saint Seiya, reading the original manga, checking out other versions of the story. And hopefully it does uh, start to find an audience now in the States. Uh, the first season of the new show wasn't the most well-received, but hopefully, maybe as it continues, more people start to discover it and start to discover the manga through it. Because Saint Seiya is definitely a series that more people should really discover and get into, because it is just such pure shonen and so much fun. And I, I think that it's a great piece of manga history and just insanely inter- interesting and entertaining franchise in its own right that I'd love to have more of. I'd love to have more of Kuramana's works and more of the Saints Day sequels and spin-offs available over here. I think the good thing was that was when Viz couldn't necessarily just cancel the manga no. because the TV was canceled. So at least we have all 28 volumes in yeah, English. It's, actually, it's really rare for Viz to straight up cancel a series. Um, they usually contract to do the full series. And in that case, it did mean that we get the entirety of Saint Seiya, which is a great boon to humanity. Especially because the Hades arc is the best one. Yeah, yes. I know. I would, I would hate for it to end before like the really good volumes. I'm so glad that Viz published the entire manga. And I'm glad that it's available digitally. The volumes might be hard to find in print, but like it's very readily accessible on any place where you can buy digital volumes. Viz's website, Comixology. And that's how I was able to read the series, because they did a digital sale a few years ago where I was able to get all the volumes for, like, $80. And, yeah, I just grabbed that up and, like, uh, blew through the manga, and it was, like, an incredible ride. So I'm really hoping more people seek it out, and I'm, it is accessible, so definitely more people should. Hopefully we can translate and put out the encyclopedia, too. Yeah, that'd be great. I think a lot of people would be really excited about that. That would have like such a wealth of information for fans to learn more about the series and characters. And yeah, there's just a lot to love about Saint Seiya and a lot to explore about it. And I, we have some f- questions from fans that also uh, are inquiring about some aspects of Saint Seiya and like our thoughts on it. And uh, the first question we got here, I think I'll read off from Twitter, is from George Horvat, who runs the great blog Land of Obscution. And George, I think, is one of the biggest Masami Kuramata fans that I know. He's written extensively on all of Kuramata's works, both the manga and anime adaptations. And I've learned a lot about uh, his works, especially his untranslated works, from reading his blog. And George asks uh, if Saint Seiya had managed to succeed, uh, which Masami Kuramata manga would uh, you guys have wanted to tackle next? Uh, excluding Beat X, which uh, Tokyopop already had published. I actually don't know, because uh, I, w- I actually would really like to do Beat X. It would be really cool if that could come back into print, because Tokyopop didn't really get very far with it. 
and it's a really fun series. Um, it has better, it has some better female characters than uh, Saint Seiya, which is kind of cool. And it's um, mm. similar to Saint Seiya in a lot of ways, but um, it's kind of its own thing. So it's it's a pretty fun series. That's awesome. I'm hoping that gets licensed rescued because the anime apparently did actually do pretty well for Discotech when they recently released it. So maybe at least in a digital only capacity, if need be, like maybe someone could relicense it, and that'd be really cool. Yeah, and that's happened with a lot of Tokyo Pop titles that went out of print, mm-hmm. which are sort of scattered to the four winds. I think I would definitely do the other Saint Seiya spinoffs first. Mm-hmm. And then I still think that Ring Nikakero would be one that I'd want to do just because that was his first breakout title. Yeah, definitely Ring Nikakero is one that I I really want to read because it seems like such an important part of manga history, of Shonen Jump history, you know, and just like a, a boxing manga from Kuramata. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down to read that, especially from all the craziness that I've heard goes on with it in terms of like, what kind of crazy characters uh, turn up as fighters in that? Yeah, from what I've heard, it's a very Kuramata-style boxing manga. <laughs> the character basically involves learning lots of secret boxing techniques that are completely impossible in the real world. <laughs> but I think also, if Saint Seiya really has a resurgence, then I'd also like to see there was at least one, if not a second for the 30th anniversary, art books. Hmm. Yeah, those would be nice, too. Yeah, so I think there's a lot more from Kermada and Cynthia that I'd, I'd like to see published in the future. And hopefully it will be. But our second question from Twitter I think comes from Golden Pelt, who asks, did Seiya have an extremely low print run because they can't remember seeing it in bookstores and even at cons it's rare to see more than a volume or two. I don't know what the print run was, but it was not one of Viz's higher selling titles. So yes, it would be it would have been hard to find in stores. But if <laughs> if the fan means now or back then or both, because I'm certain that it's pretty hard to find now, at least in print. But I remember back when it was coming out. I mean, I live in New York City, so maybe that's why. But I remember seeing at least one or two copies of each volume. Hmm. I'm not sure myself. From my own memories, I don't think I ever remember seeing St. Cia Williams in bookstores, but my library did have it in stock, at least a couple volumes. So, I'm not sure if there was many places to buy it as far as bookstores go, at least where I was, where I was living. I think it depends on where you live and which bookstores were in your area. Because certainly when it was coming out, this is, I think, still when Borders was still around. And mm-hmm. Borders definitely carried a lot of manga. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of manga coming out in that period, so it was really easy to get lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. And I guess we'll move on to the next question by Zeox, who asks, What inspiration do you think St. Seiya brought for the future generation of shonen slash manga raw? And I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but again, I think that a lot of modern shonen series owe a lot to Saint Seiya, especially series based on teams and series that are 
based on like a, a structure in terms of this organization that likes higher level members and lower level members and it's like kind of moving through the ranks and stuff. Uh, and then, of course, it's had a huge influence on not just shonen, but shoujo authors and culture and manga in general. Yeah, it really is one of the, like, I think somebody called it, I think Jason might have called it the Rosetta Stone of manga, Jason Thompson. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it really does, uh, is the root of a lot of the mod- modern elements in mainstream manga. Most definitely. I think Bleach is like one series where I definitely see so much influence from Saint Sanit, not just in in terms of like some of the elements like uh the structure of like uh the organization in the series, but also how the arcs progress and I feel like you could draw some parallels to like Sanctuary Arc and the Soul Society arc and then the Hades arc with the final arc of Bleach, the Stern Ritter arc. So Yeah. It's a series that manga creators would be familiar with and would be able to draw material from. Mm-hmm. I think also one has to remember the influence that the anime had, which is mostly in terms of the music. Mm-hmm. And certainly it really influenced any rock. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a rock and soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I think that Pegasus Fantasy has endured as one of the all-time greatest anime opening theme songs ever. I think that even if you haven't watched the show, you've heard the, the riff of that opening, the da 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 da, and then the the singer sing screaming Pegasus Fantasy. I feel like that opening team has endured, and then the the music from the series has really endured. It's like one of the best like soundtracks of the period and of any shonen anime. My first experience singing karaoke in Japan was in Akihabara singing Pegasus Fantasy. <laughs> and That's of course awesome. by seeing it I mean I was shouting <laughs> yeah Pegasus Fantasy seems like just an, a really fun song to sing like definitely up there with like Chala Hechala and all those great classic openings from the period Yep. and then our next Twitter question comes from uh, Louis Angel Ripper who asks what do you think that it was that led to its cancelization. And uh, I think it he's referring to the cancellation of the manga because it was cut short, uh, the original Shonen Jump run. So Saint Seiya is such a popular franchise now that it's hard to believe that the manga was cut short. But uh, do you guys have any insights into why it might have been? I do not. Yeah, as for Shueisha canceling us, ending Saint Seiya, I really actually don't know why. I don't know if it was like running out of popularity by that time. It had been running, at the time 28 volumes was a long run for a manga, so it might have been sort of running out of steam at that point. Whereas now it's common for manga to run far, far longer than that, but that wasn't always the case. Oh yeah. Like, uh, compared to nowadays where One Piece is approaching 100 volumes, Saint Seiya barely feels like it's a long series at all. Yeah, one of the other manga that I edit is Heyare the Combat Butler mm-hmm. over in Shonen Sunday Magazine. And uh, they had a recent thing where they were commenting that they had officially become the longest-running romantic comedy manga in the comic. Wow. As of volume, like, 39 or so. <laughs> that would put it one volume above Ranma. Exactly. It was beat out <laughs> Ranma, and it ended up going even longer than that. Yeah. 
But at the time, Ranma 38 volumes was like the longest romantic comedy of any. But it's since been eclipsed by other, even longer manga series. Yeah. Popular yeah. series just keep getting longer and longer, it sometimes seems. Well, and there's still some series from the 70s and 80s that have not ended. Yeah, Police Box is the all-time longest. But I think at the time, it was unusual for an action series like Saint Seiya to go this long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dragon Ball definitely ran longer. Yes, and that ran longer than the creator really wanted it to. <laughs> yeah. Which one? Dragon, Dragon Ball. Oh, yeah. Dragon Ball is propping up the entire Japanese economy for a while. They really kept it going as long as they possibly could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dragon Ball and Slam Dunk were such a power duo that when they ended, Shonen Jump, I think, lost, like, half its readership. That's what I heard. Like, the circulation of Shonen Jump dropped, like, oh, wow. half when both of those series ended. And the manga industry has never fully recovered from Dragon Ball ending. Mm-hmm. I think even Slam Dunk ending actually had an even bigger impact on Shonen Jump's sales because, like, it was the combination of the two was, like, half, but, like, I think, like, two-thirds of that was from Slam Dunk ending. So that series ending had an even bigger impact, surprisingly. You don't think Naruto helped? Oh, I think, uh... You're dead. Yeah. I think uh, Shonen Jump's in a good place nowadays, but in terms of circulation... Mm. I, I don't know if they are ever going to reach the heights of the 90s era. Mm. But, like, in terms of reach, like, now Shonen Jump is so global. Like, every Shonen Jump series is being, like, simul-published now. I mean, every series is available in English now, at the least. Like, the only series that isn't simul-published is Yuna, and that's because that's being published by Seven Seas, but everything else is, and that's really incredible. But that does it for our... Twitter questions, and now we'll move on, I think, to some questions from Reddit. And the first question comes from Sleepy Boy Seiya, a very great username, and they <laughs> ask, what moments within the series are your personal favorites? I like I like all the drama surrounding Hades himself and the Hades arc and the sort of conflict between Hades and Shun. That's really great. Mm-hmm. I remember there was uh, early... Or the Hades arc, or sometime during the Hades arc, where it flashes back to Hades' birth. And there's a scene where Pandora's carrying this baby bundle with the cosmos and oh, swirling so in it. <laughs> and they run into Iki and Shun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorites. Oh, that was a great sequence. That was like one of the few, like, really horror sequences in the book that was like, wow. That, that that really set, like, a creepy edge. And then, like I said, there was the scene when Doko sheds his shell, <laughs> and he becomes this young, strapping man. Yes. And then the eternal is Marin Seiya's lost sister. <laughs> yes. Of course he is. The eternal mystery. Yes. <laughs> That's so great. And for myself, uh, I think I mentioned before that I think my absolute favorite moment and is the is also my favorite fight is the Saga and the other Saints versus Shaka. But as far as other moments go, I also mentioned the shoe moments I really love. But besides that, I really like Iki's backstory about being trained on Dead Queen Island, mm-hmm. and then the story of how he, you know, was pushed over the edge to embrace anger from with the debt of Esmeralda. 
and then took over the Black State. And I also love, uh, in the Poseidon arc, I like Gemini Cannon's backstory, and I like the idea that he, you know, he was, he was being trapped in this prison because he had evil intentions, wanted to take over Sanctuary. And unbeknownst to him, he was being kept alive by some light until he eventually managed to break free and head into Poseidon's domain. I like it building up to the reveal that Aki is like, you dummy. You don't you realize that it was Athena who was keeping you alive and now you're trying to kill her? And then so disgusted, Iki just like walks off, ignoring Canon. And then the the other uh, of Poseidon's like knights is like, Yeah, you're not worth killing. I'm I'm going to help the bronze saints. And then like uh Canon is like dumbfounded and then ha- like realizes he has to repent. I like that reveal a lot. I also Really like the, the moment in when Seiya does week sanctuary and like has a talk with Saga, you know, and he Saga is like being repetitive and is like saying, telling Seiya, here's how you can save Atina. You need to get her clock to her. And then, you know, you have the reveal that, uh, as Seiya is trying to pass through him, like Saga is being taken over by his evil side again. You see the hair change color and then the reveal of like the evil Gemini Saga. I thought was really cool, too. There are a lot of really great moments in Saint Seiya that I really like. But, yeah, those are some of my favorites. And then the next question from Tara Wolf, who asks, Who is your favorite of the Bronze Boys? <laughs> oh. I think oh, we <laughs> we sort of answered this a little early in the podcast. I think, for me, my favorites are definitely Shun and Icky. But, uh... And I guess uh, as far as like some of the more underrated ones, I do like Unicorn Jab. He is kind of like a real suck up, I guess, to Saori at the beginning of the series. But he does have a really good design. I like his clot. I like that he has he wears like this uni- little unicorn horn. So he's a pretty good character. Like it's it's a shame that the other five Bronze Saints don't get to do much in the series. But I think they all have some pretty good design stuff. Yeah, I've already kind of discussed this, but I am very fond of Shun, and I'm very fond of, like, Shun and Iki as brothers. I don't think I really like any of the Bronze Saints. Really? My favorites were always Marin and Shina. Ah, yeah. Marin and Shina are really cool. I, unfortunately, they're, they're the only, like, female fighters in the series, but Marin particularly is really badass and has this great fight against the other Silver Saints. Like, at one point, they try to drown her in the, like the sea or whatever, but then she just breaks out and she has this great one-liner. It's like, "I don't like water enough to like uh, sleep in it" or something. And then she proceeds to kick the ass of the the Silver Saint too with beating up on Saya. So yeah. Marin is really is cool. After, like, is this after she's chained up and tied upside down to a yeah, cross yeah. <laughs> in the ocean? I love this manga so much. Marin <laughs> <laughs> did. The lady saints are great, and I love their creepy masks. I'm sorry they pretty much disappear from the story. Yeah. Like, they are constantly asking if Maureen is his sister. They have a lot of style. They're very disturbing oh, yeah. looking. They're like masks. And all. I like the masks a lot. It's kind of a shame that in Saintia show, they drop the mask idea, and then like the, the protagonists don't have the masks. Yeah. Because the masks are really cool. I think you could do a lot of cool things with, like, having the characters all wear these different really interesting masks. I like Sheena's mask. It kind of has, like, this almost punk aesthetic to it. And they kind of play that up in the Netflix 
the new Netflix version, where she doesn't wear a mask, but she still has, like, the markings over her face. And it's a really good design with her. There's also, you know, the creepiest armor. One is from the Silver Saints. There's actually a Fly Saint. Mm. And then in the Hades arc, there's the Frog Spectre. Oh, yeah, that guy's great, and he does have great armor. (laughs) It's a little creepy. He is super creepy. He's like Toad in the (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, and Kermada is really good at coming up with, like, these really awesome character designs. He seems to have, like, an endless reserve of ideas for armor and things you can build out of armor, which I'm very impressed by. Yeah, he's really cool. And uh, our final Reddit question comes from Luna Moon Venus, who asks, Do you think there is anything we can do to increase Saint Seiya's popularity in the English-speaking world? Sell more figures! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a a good idea. I think, like, people are really into buying collectibles these days, for sure. So, like, you bring out a good, like, figure line, I think people will really grab more interest in, like, oh, what's the story behind this series? I think another good approach would might be, like, to have, like, a really great fighting game, which I think Saints has a perfect well to draw from. Like, Dragon Ball Fighters got a lot of people into Dragon Ball just because the, the fighting game was just so well made. So Saints Seiya, a really good fighting game, like, that might be a huge help. That would certainly be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I'd love to play one myself. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole series, I mean, you know, the whole manga has been translated, fortunately. And since it's available digitally, happily, anyone can enjoy Saint Seiya at any time. So please let people know about it. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Please let people know about it. (laughs) (laughs) My son. It is actually really exciting to to be in a time when, you know, we have these resources that we can get even, you know, less popular manga series and uh, read them at least digitally. That's and they certain- don't take up space and in the room. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is something that was certainly not available when I started getting into manga, and there were tons of like mysterious series that I was feared I would never be able to read. <laughs> um, now, Saint Seiya does not have to be a bestseller for you to go and read it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And that does it for the Reddit questions. So now we only have a few more questions from people who sent in emails, and. We actually answered most of Dennis Hohenberg's questions, uh, the question about why Babel's name is kept, but he has another question about, like, uh, the covers of the St. Seiya volumes. So he notes that one of the covers is that of the encyclopedia. So he wonders if you if we had the rights to the encyclopedia and we're going to release it, which I think is not the case, which didn't. But uh, the, a question about the covers, about one of them being the encyclopedia's cover. So I think that particular volume is the 21st volume, uh, which is like, it, it's kind of like there's this frame of, where we're seeing all the bronze saints kind of lined up. So that's the cover of the encyclopedia. So I guess my question is, like, where, what were the source of the covers for the the Viz editions of the series? Were they different from the Tonko Bonds? Were they... uh? The Bunkoban covers? Yeah, this, I can't actually answer that. This was a fallout, partly the, for the fact that we were working from the Bunkobans rather than the Tonkobans, and partly because Shueisha did not always have all of the um, color assets that we needed for everything. Mm-hmm. Publishers do not always have good copies of 
all the materials from older manga, and that can be a problem when uh, putting out new editions. So, for Knights of the Zodiac, Shueisha just basically collected tons and tons of art that we could use for covers and told us to just use whatever we thought would be appropriate, and that's what we did. We did kind of start running low at the end because they didn't have the color. As far as I know, they didn't have the color. The um, they didn't have high quality assets for all of the Tonko covers. So that was why we had we had some that came from, for example, a uh, yeah the the encyclopedia and some other sources. I actually mm-hmm. wondered about that myself because I know for sure that these were not Tonko covers. Yeah, they don't match the Tonko covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool to to learn about because I was wondering with certain covers uh, of the series, like, huh, this is an interesting character choice to put on this volume when this character really isn't featured that much in this volume. And so, yeah, now now it kind of makes sense to me, like, why uh, what art assets were used for the covers uh, that you you guys were just really using, like, what you had available and could use at the time. So. Yeah, there's there's one where we showed the the gold armor on the cover before it appeared in the manga and I'm upset about that we shouldn't have done that <laughs> uh, I should have been more careful because I don't want to spoil armor design but for the most part I did really try I did try to get stuff that would I want well really number one I just wanted the art that would look cool I tried to get eye, art that would be really eye catching for the covers because uh, I really wanted people to pay attention to, to the art and pick up the books actually Shannon Mm-hmm. Now that the fan sparked my memory, I'm looking through the encyclopedia. I'm wondering if most of those art assets came from the encyclopedia. Because the encyclopedia had a lot of color prints. Yeah, that's very likely. Hmm. Now, I don't know if maybe some of these are existed before the encyclopedia, but they're definitely used. And, for example, the Viz edition... Volume 1 is from, let's see, 1, 2, the third page after the frontispiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably where Shueisha got a lot of the, the color images. That's really cool to finally learn about. So uh, I hope that answers like people's questions about like why, what art was used for what covers. And I think that the art used for the covers was all really cool. Like, I, I like uh, all the covers a lot. And my favorite is definitely probably Volume 23. I really just like that illustration of, like, the saints. I guess they're all at Sanctuary, and I just like the how the background is rendered. But also Volume 24's cover with all the gold saints is really great, too. Yeah, I had some pretty good... Oh, yeah, that one is cool. Even Yeah, I liked that one a lot. That, that was... Um... Yeah, that was from ones where I think we'd gotten, we didn't have stuff that matched close to the Tonko covers, and so I, I I tried to pick really good covers for volumes near the end. Yeah, the one with all the gold saints is, is super cool. Mm-hmm. And then the back cover illustrations, um, yes, the back cover illustrations are just um, the armor diagrams from the manga. Oh, nice. That's something I didn't know because I had only read the series digitally. Yeah. So... Next time I'm able to have a physical copy of the book in the hand, I I'd like to see the back of those and see all the different yeah, ones. Yeah, took the the armored diagrams from the manga and uh, sort of cleaned them up, and they actually look really awesome as cover as back cover illustrations. Hmm. And then our n- final question from Dennis H is: uh, Did you communicate with Kuramata Productions during the translation uh, period of the manga? 
like uh, to check in with what names should be used and stuff like that. And uh, from the sounds of it, like you guys are mostly communicating with DIC in terms of names, but uh, aside from that one page that uh, Kermata requested to replace, like was it like a a consistent back and forth with them for approvals on like translations and stuff? No, actually, we got um, they had a clear list of things they wanted. Like for example, they want that one piece of art used, and they had certain names they wanted, but. Uh, for the most part, that came out in the beginning. Viz is a um, subsidiary of Shigaku Konnichiwa, so we tend to have more leeway with titles from those two publishers than we have with titles from other publishers. Mm-hmm. And um, generally, yeah, we didn't get too much feedback from them once we got started. That was all stuff that they, they let us know up front. Okay. In my experience, it's one of my fondest wishes that I could, at least through the English editor, get in touch with the publisher or the editor, rarely do we get to actually talk even indirectly with the creator, but there will be times when, and I don't think this happened with Saint Seiya, because the translation wasn't as complex, but with other titles, there are definitely cases where I would send my English editor, my Viz editor, whether it was another publisher, that editor, and say, can you please ask the publisher slash editor this question? And it was more so more recently when we're doing more simul pulps because there are times when you don't know where the story is going mm-hmm. and you don't want to translate something that is nuanced in the wrong way. But the other thing that drives me nuts as a translator is when you have non-major characters off screen and you don't know what gender to use. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's always a problem. And, yeah, it's it's always an issue translating something that's still coming out and they're being the dialogue is being sort of coy about some detail that you, <laughs> and you don't want to mess it up in the future. And this happened a lot with Naruto, mm-hmm. partly because of the length of the series, but also when the Viz translations started, it was very defined. But then it caught up, and even when there were about 14, 15 volumes out, I often didn't have the chance to read all 15 volumes, or there might even be something they set up really early. And I'd be like, well, does this person end up dying, or do they end up being more important than they seem? And I remember there's one in particular where I asked the editor at the time, Please confirm or deny. Mm-hmm. I never got an answer back, and fortunately, that storyline was a dead end, so it didn't matter. <laughs> I remember having enormous trouble with a manga called Beat the Vandal Buster ah. because they were incredibly circuitous in talking about who or what the main villain was, and in just in <laughs> Japanese, you can be vague about that. So they were able to like have conversations without revealing if the big bad person was like male or female or one person or a group of people or anything at all. But like that's very hard to translate into English. And I had to like make certain choices and hope that I didn't I'd turn out to be wrong down the line. Then Beat the Vandal Buster got canceled in Japan anyway. So fortunately I without revealing who the bad guy was, so fortunately I never had to deal with it. Wow. There was one that was really embarrassing. It was actually a Viz title. 
but it was one of Rumiko Takahashi's. <gasps> it's actually her boxing series. Ooh, one pound, one gospel. pound gospel. Great manga. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I'd spell the title of the gym owner and, and the main, the head coach could be pronounced two different ways. And I went with one. And then somewhere further down the line, Takahashi Sensei actually romanized the name of the gym on the back of the jacket. And it was the other pronunciation. I've had that happen so many times. <laughs> oh, wow. Face plant. <laughs> wow, the, the struggles of uh, localization and translation. Yeah, I had one. Oh, when I was doing Tagami Bachi, uh, letter <laughs> Um, there was a character who, the character had a very odd name, but it didn't, it didn't sound like anything that I recognized. So I decided it was, probably wasn't a reference to anything in particular. I could go ahead and go with the most straightforward transliteration of the name. Then long down the line, it turned out she's named after the Welsh goddess Belondweg, which I probably was pronouncing. <laughs> I am so impressed with this author for knowing like Celtic myth to that extent, but also, I could have given her a more appropriate uh, Romanized name. If mm-hmm. only I'd known it was a reference to this Welsh myth. I guess that was, that's kind of an extreme example. Mm-hmm. Those must be like the most difficult names to translate and like localize. The ones that are like really based on like an obscure reference that you kind of have to parse through and yeah, figure but, out. I mean, usually it's some obscure Japanese reference, but um, when somebody get when they can get obscure with like Western culture, I'm like enormously impressed. Like, this is a well-read manga artist. Mm-hmm. Well, my favorite manga that hasn't been licensed yet, as far as I'm aware, is based on Celtic mythology. And I really want to translate it, but it's going to be a pain <laughs> because I learned that there's a Welsh, Gaelic, Celtic, and Scottish, Celtic, and a bunch of other different myths. Oh, yes, definitely. And different spelling. And some of it, is the author created original characters. <laughs> so how am I supposed to spell everything? What series is that? Uh, Crystal Dragon. That sounds rad. Mm. It's another one that I pitched and I was told the art was too old. Really? Aww. Plus, I think it technically hasn't ended. It's really? On, what is it called? Forever Hiatus? Oh, oh yeah. No. That happens. Yeah. A series from the early 80s that's over 25 volumes. Wow. But that sounds like a really cool series that I'd love to read. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that all sounds really cool. And I guess we'll, we just have one more question from uh, Adrian Ayala. And uh, they actually are a huge fan of St. who lived in Mexico for a couple of years. Oh, yeah. And uh, it wasn't until they started living in Mexico that they became aware of St. Sia. And they note that in Mexico, like in many countries, like in Central America and South America, St. Sia has a big following, and one that rivals other classic series like Dragon Ball. And they're sad that, unfortunately, in the U.S., the series didn't gain much traction, and it's unknown to many. And so we sort of address, like, the question of, like, why we think the series didn't manage to get a large following here is... You know, because a lack of, like, the, the merchandise, the anime wasn't very well received, and stuff like that. But they also have a, a question about that, you know, a couple months ago, 
uh, it was revealed that Saban, the company that localized Power Rangers, you know, had actually been working on a live-action Saint Seiya series known as Star Storm, and that a pilot was made with a small trailer, apparently available online. And so it's rumored that Kuramata himself uh, ultimately decided not to go with this adaptation, saying that it had strayed too far from the original series' intent. And so they ask if we think that if Starstorm had been fully made, do you think that it would have been beneficial to the series and its popularity in the West? Oh, project, oh. no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it depends on whether it was any good. Yeah. Karamata didn't like it. That's probably not a good sign. Yeah. On the other hand, I would love to see a animated Saint Seiya that is either full anime or realistic CG. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some of the images, I, and I'm going to watch the trailer after this, of the Netflix series. And while it looks great, to me it looks like a game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I personally think the CG in the the animation in the Netflix show is actually really good. It's, like, really fluid. It's, like, mm. uh, the action choreography is really nice. Where it really lacks to me is the storytelling, where they've made a lot of changes to the original story that actually makes it make less sense than the original somehow in certain aspects, like... And they also kind of really simplify the way characters speak and the morals, and they add a military subplot that doesn't really have a, any actual commentary to it. It's just like adding another antagonistic element into it. I also really like the melding of real-life film with a lot of CG that's realistic, like Battle Angel Alita. Mm, yeah, Alita was so good. So if they do kind of like a Saint Seiya like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really... I think they're making a Saint Seiya live-action movie. Uh, it was announced a while ago. That was in the works. I forget which company, but it is definitely like an international... A, a movie that's being made to appeal to an international uh, audience. Yeah, it's... a. Uh, collaboration between Toei and the Hong Kong-based company ARGF. And, yeah, I guess we'll see what comes from that, but I hope that uh, the special effects and CG used for that film are up to snuff. Uh, I actually found, like, the uh, trailer for that live-action pilot the uh, listener was mentioning that I can link to you guys if you want to check it out. But it's short 19 second like trailer. And, uh, it doesn't look that great for sure. The costumes look very cheap. Not as good as cosplays I've seen. And, uh, the style of it definitely feels very Power Rangers esque. But yeah, I don't know if this would have caught on. I mean, maybe if it was as, like, Power Rangers did have some good writing to it that appealed to the kids and, like, people are fond of because it can, like, hold up for adults to watch it. At least if you grew up with it, you still can watch, uh, look back on it fondly. So, I don't know, it would really have to depend on the writing uh, because the, the look of the show, the cinematography and the costuming definitely is not very inspiring. But yeah, in this trailer, it's like all the saints, I guess, are fighting what looks to be Death Mask based on the cancer crab mask. So, 
<laughs> a very interesting artifact of the time, I suppose. Apparently, Kuramata has commented on the the existence of this like live action pilot before. Uh, I looked it up, and apparently, uh, here's a quote he said back in 2003 from Anime Land. He said that uh, some years ago, a project about a live action Saint Seiya movie came to my office. In Hollywood, there's a pilot of 15 minutes, but the essence of the series was not respected. Uh, the designs of realization made us think about the Ninja Turtles, and the names were changed. Uh, and so the project was abandoned because they couldn't obtain a satisfactory result. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think that Saint Seiya actually was attempted to be made into live action at one point, and now they're trying again. So hopefully the modern attempt, I think we've seen from movies like Battle Angel, and even uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, that you can bring these worlds to life now in a satisfying way. Like, we've moved beyond the, the eras of Dragon Ball evolution, like these half-hearted attempts, and now we can really bring these worlds to life with modern special effects, and also with the input and writing of people who care about the series and franchise. So here's hoping the, the new Seiya live-action film, hopefully the development with that is going smoothly and it gets made. Maybe that will be what uh, eventually... Well- Help spread I think the word. Important point too is now. I think we're finally moving into a new phase of movie making, where the Hollywood producers are actually working with the original Japanese anime producer mm-hmm. on projects, and I think that's when we'll start finally seeing live action movies that are a financial success. Definitely. And I've heard from people in the industry. That part of the reason why Japan hasn't done as many live action adaptations, especially the real space battle or fantasy titles, is because they don't have the budget that Hollywood does. Yeah. <laughs> and the failure of a lot of, especially earlier Hollywood adaptation, is they license the title, but they don't work with the original creator, with the original creative team. So the story diverges. And as you said, you don't necessarily have people that were originally passionate about the original work. And maybe the reason why... And I actually don't know what the final numbers were on Alita, but you can tell that James Cameron, who we already know is a fan of Alita, put a lot of love into it. Mm-hmm, definitely. He was a fan of the original manga, and he had been working to make that film since the 90s. Yeah. And it really came out great. Uh, unfortunately, the film didn't perform well at the box office, but like, I think it's a film that'll get a cult following as the years go by, because everyone who saw the film who was a fan of the manga, and who were general anime fans, all the reception was so positive. So I think it's a promising step forward. And on the Japanese uh, film industry side, I think that now they are in a state where special effects have progressed to a point where they're willing to invest into a point that they can bring fantasy films to life in an astounding way. Uh, I saw the Kingdom film recently, and that film is absolutely gorgeous. Beautifully shot and has such a sense of scale in terms of depicting... China in the feudal era and like depicting like these large scale armies and complex battle scenes and the costuming and the, the set design scenery, all of it was just so immaculately made. And uh, recently, 
the author king of the mangaka kind of came forward in an interview that the film was very inspired by uh U.S. productions like Game of Thrones and like what they were able to do with like fantasy series. So uh, I feel like we could see films like on a huge blockbuster scale, like really bring like these complex worlds that have only really been able to exist in manga to life and live action in the future for sure. I hope so. Mm-hmm. But that does it for all our fan questions, which I'm really grateful we got so many fan questions and. Uh, we got to talk about so much stuff, and I really learned a lot from you guys about uh, the production history of the Saint Seiya manga and its release in English, and it was just such a pleasure to talk about the series with you guys. Oh, oh my gosh, it's so exciting to be able to talk about uh, Saint Seiya. This is a, I mean, <laughs> I worked on this title a while ago. I still love it. It's one of my favorites that I've worked on, and it's just really exciting to talk about it with other people. You've rekindled my Cosmo. <laughs> <laughs> you were where all our Cosmos are combusted to their limit. Yeah, we're setting them ablaze. We're going to take down the wall to Elysium and breaks through. I feel like just running it a pillar over and over until it falls over. <laughs> <laughs> our bodies might perish, but we'll be brought back again and again like the Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> what a great manga. Yeah, I love it so much. But, yeah, thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, once again, thank you, Mari, and it was great to have you on the show, Shannon. And I guess we'll wrap up the show now. So I guess my final question to you guys is, where can we find you and your work? Uh, where are you on social media? What are the stuff that you're currently working on? Uh, Shannon, would you like to take away the honors? Okay, sure. Well, I mean, in addition to um, being a freelance manga editor, I am a cartoonist and a writer, and you can find my work at shanon.com. That's S-H-A-E-N-O-N.com. I'm also on Twitter as Shannon Garrity. Excellent. And uh, what are some of the books that you're currently uh, working on? Like, Case Close is one of them, and uh, what are some... My workload's pretty light right now. It's Right now, it's just Case Close and Hayate the Combat Butler, and I've been on Case Close since about volume 18 or so, and I'm now <laughs> in, up in the 80s, so this is this is a, a long haul for me. Many more years to come, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> well, case this is my son, and he loves Case Close. He's five. It's really not appropriate for him, but he loves it anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Really uh repping those Shonen Sunday series, Case Close and Hayate. Which uh oh, yeah. we have a lot of friends of the show that really love Shonen Sunday, so thank you oh, for keeping up. Well, this, yeah, well, Case Close has long been their flagship title and apparently Hayate is now their longest running romantic comedy, so those are two powerhouses. Mm-hmm. And Mari, where can people find you and uh, the books you're working on? Uh, well, let me tackle the second one first. I'm also a little light right now, but Boruto is still going. Mm-hmm. And I'm also in a lull in terms of appearances, but I will be uh, interpreting for Gundam creator, director Tomino at Anime New York City. Nice. Oh, for uh, manga fans, I should probably also mention that I edit the manga review section of Otaku USA magazine, and I strongly recommend it for finding out everything about uh, like new manga titles, because uh, 
the reviewers and I are working very hard on like reviewing as much as possible. Most definitely, definitely pick up Otaku USA. I always love uh, checking out those reviews and like the the free pre manga previews you guys often run there too. Yeah, I'm also in charge of the free previews, so that is the manga previews are my my work too, and I've I've got some really cool ones. I'm very excited. I, I I like being able to provide some like kind of unusual and interesting manga for the previews, so I've got some some good stuff lined up. Hmm. Awesome. And Director Tomino's appearance at Anime NYC is actually gonna be ten years since he was last in New York. Oh wow! And That's awesome. It also is helping to wrap up Gundam's 40th anniversary. Yay! Oh, that's so exciting. I plan to be at Anime NYC this year, so I'm really looking forward to that uh, Tomino panel. Let's meet up! Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so definitely keep an eye out for uh, Mari at Anime NYC and check out uh, the books that she's coming up, and as well as Shaman's. Uh, check out the Kathos and Hayate, and uh, check out Otako USA. And, yeah, thank you guys once again for coming on to discuss Saint Seiya with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks again to Mari and Shannon for coming on the show. And if you want to find where I am, you can follow me at Mayasha on Twitter and find me on Animation Revelation and AnyList. And wherever there's a Lum Romyasha, that's where you can find me. But if you want more of this show, then you can follow us at Manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter. MangaMavericks.tumblr.com Our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Manga Mavericks. And we're on every podcast platform you can think of. Be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. We're probably on it. And you can find us there, you can subscribe to us, you can leave us a rating and a review. All those things really help the show out, help us grow, help us reach new listeners. And if you want to help support the show and more podcasts like this, you can donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash mavericks, where we have a variety of tiers available for you to check out, including... A $2 tier for early access, and early access patrons were able to listen to this podcast weeks in advance before its public release date. And in addition to that, we have a $5 tier where we offer monthly bonus pods. These bonus pods include a exclusive manga fight on Monster Girls, several at movies episodes on films such as Alita Battle Angel and Dragon Ball Super Broly. And our current project is the Manga Mavericks Book Club, in which Grant the Thief and Colton goes through JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Phantom Blood volume by volume. So if you hit up our Patreon at the Five Dogs here, you should be able to listen to the first two of those JJBA Phantom Blood podcasts with the third one coming out later this month. But if you're a fan of St. Seiya, let's just say you also might want to pledge that here because we may have a St. Seiya-related podcast project coming to the Patreon in the near future. But you're going to have to keep your eyes open and your ears perked for more information on that but getting a jump on that by pledging to the $5 here 
is not only a good start to be in the know of when that will come out, but also help us produce podcasts like this, like all the other projects we love doing, and continue to bring you guys quality discussion on manga with awesome people, knowledgeable on manga in a variety of different subjects and disciplines. But if you have any comments, any feedback, anything you want to share with us regarding your history with Saint Seiya or thoughts on this podcast, something you want to add to the conversation, you can email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com. We always love hearing your guys' thoughts, reading your emails, and we will love to read them out on the show. So definitely send those in. But that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks talking about Saint Seiya. And I think we'll see you in the next one. Sayonara!